you don't want to get bit by a venomous snake if you can avoid it for a lot of reasons. But I'd say the cost is way more painful than the actual bite. Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. We should stop talking about YouTube. You Welcome, everyone, to From the Ground Up. Thank you so much for being here. If you guys don't know, everyone was so curious of when I was going to put out an actual YouTube video. So guess what? You I finally it. put out a YouTube video, and nobody watched it. So if you could go watch it, that would be sweet. Um, it took me 12 hours to edit, and it has less views than pretty much all of our podcasts, which... Yeah, yeah. which makes no sense, but... Yeah, so I love it. It's, a, it's of our rattlesnake hunt and going to the Knox and Rattlesnake Roundup in Knox in Pennsylvania. And uh, we saw some cool snakes. And please check it out. Not we, you and me. Just we, you and Alan. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I guess I need to clarify. <laughs> if anyone knows me, they know I was not there. Um, but other than that, we will have lots of videos this summer, hopefully, displaying all our new babies. Um, if you follow us on Instagram, you know we had our first Brooks King clutch. Um, and it's exciting, even though they're all normal. It's so fun. This is our first time we produced King. And it was really exciting. And they're actually way calmer than our corns have been in the past. I don't know what's up with that. So far. Um, some of them have been showing some type of attitude but since not, I separated them. But not like, right, in their, in their little containers. Now. But like we were able to pick them up right out there. Um, you know, the lay box, or not the lay box, the... Uh, the egg box and the corns are like gone immediately and flighty or bitey but these guys were just kind of hanging out so. yeah at least they're not fast if they're going to be defensive then they're you know defensive and rattling their tail they're not like corns will run yeah. right right and then you lose them and then, that's and not then good. we're sad um but other than that more videos more to come with t-shirts available on our website as you can see joe is wearing one of our t-shirts and i'm i just made me poke your boob oh you did not poke my boob you didn't have to say that also <laughs> that's uh, weird okay to be transparent yes know? but if you like snakes and you like beer buy this shirt <laughs> yeah i'll be sweet poor city python.com other than that baby's available in the Near not future. so distant future other than that today's guest so you may have heard me previously on deadly tarantula girls youtube channel melissa was too busy being sick to show up <laughs> wow that makes it sound bad but today we have the duo from deadly tarantula girl it is marita who is the deadly tarantula girl and jd her husband and uh, they both live in new mexico and have a lot of really cool animals so i'm excited to talk to them during our live stream, they randomly brought in like a mini horse. So, <laughs> so that's always fun. And so, how did you guys, who got into exotic animals first and kind of uh, how did you backstory. guys meld all of that together? We both were, I've been into animals our whole life. So, I guess I got into them first because I'm a bit older than she is. Uh, and it, we got into animals at different times, obviously. Uh, my first exotic animal was a toke gecko that I had for almost 10 years. 
His name was Spot. He used to fight me all the time. Still one of my favorite geckos in the whole world. And you? Um, so I got interested in um, reptiles and amphibians in the hills in California. We had a lot of really cool tree frogs, some night snakes. And um, then when I moved to New Mexico, when I was um, still a pretty young kid, we had some really crazy invertebrates, tarantulas, centipedes, vinegaroons, scorpions, giant, giant things that were relatively harmless. So, I mean, they could sting you and bite you, but it, it wasn't dangerous. So you could really kind of get in there. I mean, we even had giant um, ants that, where I lived in California, we had fire ants and sugar ants, and they were tiny. And the ants here were huge. They were like moving these big boulders of dirt and I mean, it was just fascinating. So I started making my own little ant farms and it was just really nuts. And, um, you know, I was raised up around different types of animals, dogs and cats and rabbits and horses and chickens and, you know, um, so um, me kind of extending that into different exotic types of animals basically happened as soon as I was old enough to be able to start getting my own things. And um, so I've been in education for a long time, but I actually took a break from that um, toward the end of my bachelor's degree to uh, manage a pet store for a while and um, kind of got exposed to some even different things then. And yeah, the rest is history. It just kind of went wild once we got together. <laughs> So you guys were separately into, and it seems like JD was more into reptiles and you were more into uh, inverts? Um, yeah, I guess you could say so. Well, I come from the far north, Montana, North Dakota, and tarantulas and inverts were not. When I was a kid, I saw my first tarantula in a pet store when I was about 12 or 15. I'd never seen a real live tarantula before that. So I was interested in them, but I just didn't have access to them. We didn't have internet, so all we had was the books. Reptiles Magazine didn't come out until 93, and this was in the 80s. So uh, it did. it's not that I didn't love them, I just didn't know about them. Right, yeah, I think, I think people forget that to some extent you were kind of constrained to like your local pet store. Yeah, Especially back then, and I guess in, Man in Montana, there's probably not many of those. No, and in North Dakota, there was only one that was within our range. We had to drive 36 miles to get groceries. We were out in the middle of nowhere. Whoa. Trying to keep an animal alive when it's 80 below zero is a little more difficult than than other things. <laughs> you know, yeah. Monkeys and polar bears, I sure think it would be okay there. But, <laughs> but there were a lot of reptiles in the, in the wild. I got to see bull snakes and rattlesnakes, the prey rattlers. And once when I was a kid, I actually saw a rough green snake up there. Only ever seen one in my life in the wild, and it was in Montana. Wow. I didn't even know that the range went up there. Neither did I until I saw it. <laughs> so how did you guys, like, how does that work? Did you both have your own collections when you guys were? Um, and did you talk about each other's collections before you started dating? Um, so yeah, definitely. We were definitely into each other's animals for sure. Um, so, uh, his was, uh, much more larger. He was like super heavy into venomous and stuff like that. And I was like, dang, this dude is hot. 
And uh, <laughs> I had never really um, done a whole lot of field herping. And so he was like, oh, yeah, there's so many cool places. And so at that point, we both were in New Mexico. And um, so he was like, yeah, I'll take you out and show you sometime. And so we started kind of cruising the roads at night and um, just looking for all kinds of stuff. One time we saw a, um, what was it? You went to go catch it for me. The ringtail? Yes, a ringtail cat. And I had never seen one before. So he went and grabbed it out of a bush and he had it by the tail. And so I was running over there when it was dark. So I was running with my light and it turned and it was climbing up its tail to bite him and so he let it go. So I still didn't get to see a ringtail cat for years after that. But um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's it's too much fun. Uh, we both have, I guess, species that we're probably more interested in than the other. Like I really, really like um, retics. Of course, I like sugar gliders and miniature horses and stuff. He Siberian really. Siberian hamsters. Yes, they're so cute, the little Roborowski hamsters. What do they look like, and what's oh, different from regular hamsters? So they're they're about the size of a ping pong ball, full grown, and they're just a little round fluff. I would grab one, but somebody just took them to their house with them last night to go show them to some people. Um, I have about a dozen of them, and they are a comedy act. They will literally like roll into a ball and tuck their chin on their fluff and just go to sleep. They will climb up and fall and just roll over because they're just like fat and fluffy. They're so funny. They uh, pouch their food like a squirrel. And so they'll be trying to run on their wheel with their, you know, faces full of food like this. It's so funny. Anyway, he's more into, he really likes um, sand boas and I like hognose too, but so we both have things that we're like more interested in than the other, but we both really like everything pretty much, unfortunately, because it's kind of crazy over here. Yeah, I can imagine we're almost lucky in the fact that Melissa isn't as into it as I am. So like we don't get each other as Too much, much into, stuff. into other stuff. Well, we were just able, fortunate enough to get a pair of Brooks last year in May and I pulled them off and I lost the female. They were both adults and the male is actually a hypo. So this winter we were able to get a juvenile. So we're raising it up. It's a normal too uh, to breed. I'm pretty excited about trying to breed those. Uh, yeah. Do you have problems with them trying to eat each other? No, I mean, they, they bit the male bit the female, which we learned was normal after well, we started. I, I expected it. I was not as intense as it was. Remember we were he did, he did wrap her a couple times, like a little bit too hard to where I was like, I'm not sure if that is, uh, if that's healthy or not, but it's definitely something we had to watch. Like, but it wasn't, we were never like super scared. I tried to like break the feeding response as much as I could before I put them together. Cause it seems like if they just, the first thing they do is he sees her and we're vice versa. There's just much more of an opportunity. I don't know. But it was very barbaric. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty brutal. Like it's very interesting to watch. Just holding, biting for like thirty minutes while they make it happen. And then even when she's not receptive, you know, he would bite her and hold on for an extended period of time, even though she wasn't receptive. So, and he, she was pretty much just 
living her life. Leading him around right. the enclosure and dragging him along. So good old ball. But yeah, and you shouldn't have you shouldn't really have any problem with them. They're pretty pretty straightforward. Cool. They're beautiful species. I really like them. And they're just so different than like Cali King. You know, they're to me they're completely different demeanors i'm not sure if we lucked out with our individuals that they're laid back <laughs> because i mean king snakes are king snakes and i've heard of brooks king snakes being just as bad as a cow king uh, okay well maybe we just lucked out yeah we don't we don't have much of a pool of experience to, to pull from all we have is literally that male and female who produce so well they're neat animals and i really enjoy them uh, we're getting more into the king snakes She's kind of she she likes the brightly colored stuff, which I do too. But king snakes, most of them are muted or browns or blacks, and I'm just trying to to build our collection up a little more that way. I I, I just want to reproduce them. For years, I've tried to breed. You know, we can't keep grayback king snakes here in New Mexico, but we've had them years before when we didn't live here, and just never had any luck producing any eggs. So. Kind of like a goal. I've never produced cow kings either. We've had adults, and something always seems to go wrong. Like we had a, we borrowed a male for our female this last winter, bred them in the fall, getting ready to breed them in the spring, and that male during the winter time, the back of the drawer popped out, and he escaped, and we haven't seen him since. Oh no. Uh, yeah, or her since. We we got him back to to his owner. Yeah, but it's. Always something with king snakes. We we haven't had luck with them yet. Well, I saw that uh, last time we talked, you hatched out some milk snakes, right? Uh, I have in the past. Oh, but... yeah, we we got those. Um, we... Oh no, you just had babies that you were starting. Yep. Yeah, Doctor Heinrich, uh, one of the veterinarians. That's in the, right. Carlsbad hatched them out last year, and he had messed around with them for three or four months and couldn't get them feeding. Because he, for years, he's been reproducing them, never had a problem getting them started on pinkies. And this year, last year, he did. And uh, it's been, we got them in July of last year, so a year ago. And this last week is the first time the female, we got one female and six males. And this last week is the first time she's taken a split pinky. So we a year found, and a half of feeding. Yeah, and they are tiny, so it's scary business. <laughs> Have you have you messed around with small colubrids before? Yeah, I've had milk baby milk snakes before, baby gray bands. Uh, what milk snakes have we messed around with? Hondurans, of course, when they hatch out, they're pretty big. Uh, little stuff like gentilis. I've had baby gentilis that I've worked with. Uh, maybe that's a small snake. Back years and years ago, we had an experience with baby eyelash vipers and. It didn't go so well. They're, they were even tinier than the milk snakes. Yeah, that's a tricky for speed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that. They're so plentiful, it seems, in the hobby, but they're kind of tough to get started. Yeah, they are. Yeah, it helps if you live in a place where there's lots of frogs and things like that. Here in the desert, there aren't a ton of little tiny frogs running around. So yeah. that was one of our problems. How long have y'all been in Mexico? Um, I've been here since 89. What year did you? I've been here about 10 or 12 years. No, 15. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I've been all over the place. So. 
a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we're hoping to move to Texas soon, but you guys just left. Why did you leave God's country? God. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, we're just closer, just closer to family. Otherwise, uh, especially the the snake scene there is cool, and we. I miss really right. Awesome it's it's there. hard. We have there's a great snake scene here, but I kind of miss the Texas snake scene. Well, it's mostly because you just drink beers. I, was, I wasn't going to say that, but I was thinking that. I was 100%. I miss the shows. The shows are much more party-ish like than, than up here. Oh, really? There's just more rules up here. <laughs> you can't oh. drink as easily. <laughs> well, I guess people, maybe they still frowned upon it. Frowned it. I don't know, but we just act much more professional up here than no they no one frowned upon it they sold beer at the one star show in texas yeah like it's drinking is welcome down there so i don't know what part of texas are y'all looking to move to well my dream place which is not so much hers because it's still in the desert she wants to live in east texas where there's trees i like trees i want to live in del rio which is the deep desert so, yeah. Middle of nowhere. Yeah, I like that. In North Dakota, like I said, we were 36 miles away from town where we got groceries. There was 60 people in the town. Oh, That's the village. <laughs> so I like it when there's not so many people around. Yeah, yeah. And that's something to where, uh, like, I'm used to having trees around and having mountains. And then in Texas, everything was flat. And then we were at least in East Texas where there were some trees. So, but not, Yeah, there weren't a lot. But we don't have... East Texas has cool snakes, but really not anything in comparison to, to West Texas, obviously. Did you guys ever get to see any uh, uh, Texas indigos when you were down there? In the wild? No, to be honest, I wouldn't even know where to begin, but uh, I mean, <laughs> I didn't even try. I should have. I should have thought about that, but I think you need to go more down near uh, Houston, basically. Uh, a little bit know, further south. south a bit. Yeah. Well, they said that uh, I've heard that there are reports of people that have spotted them south of San Antonio, like 20 or 30 miles. But I've, I've never seen one in the wild either. I'd love to someday. Yeah, I didn't even, I'm so bad. I was so bad at herping up there. I didn't even see an, an Aatrox. I didn't even see a Western Diamondback. So. Oh, wow. And those are pretty plentiful, so. Yeah, they are. I got bit by one in December. It was in my in our yard. What? Yeah, I got bit. I went to go pick up a board, and it was dark, and I didn't even think about it because it was about fifty degrees. Yeah, out. it was like right before Christmas. And wow. stuck my hand under there, felt the prick, and got bit. Yeah, it was a big what in your yard. I'm sorry. No, that was the first one we've ever seen. However, two weeks ago, uh, we ran across a hog nose. It was about almost 20 inches long, going in the same spot where the rattlesnake was. Yeah, we've had other snakes in the yard, but that was the first rattlesnake, which in the summertime, we do watch out for them. I mean, they're around, but you just don't think about it as much in the wintertime when you're out and about. I do now. Well, yeah. Don't ever lift up a board and stick your hand under it without a blade. <laughs> so did you end up uh what was treatment like well what we did is we've got a product that um we got from one of our sponsors uh tongs.com called a venom lock so when i got bit we were freaking out which was weird because our son that day 
kept asking about this. Where is it? What's going on with it? Uh, how come it's not in the zoo? Um, I don't know why he thought it needed to be in the zoo, but we have it above our computer here. And so we got this on within probably five minutes of the bike. The hospital's about 10 minutes away, which is where I work. And we went over there. I told them I got bit. They got me triaged. Within 45 minutes, they had already started, gotten an IV started, and uh, we're starting the, the CROPEP. But because I had this on, it was I got bit right here, which you can't see. There's no damage at all to the hand. Right. Um, I was able to get this on because it was just in the perfect spot for a hand because this is meant for body, not for your extremities. You know, if it, your arms, it, it'll work. Um, they did, one of the nurses, what, after we took this off, after I got the crowfab, my arms swelled up to my shoulder. And she, she came in and was shocked. She said she thought it was a dry bite. I knew it wasn't because it hurt so bad. Uh, it contained the venom in this area, and that area just felt like, somebody was sticking a hot poker in there so i got six vials of crofab and the doctor was concerned that my arms swelled up so quick that we got i got life flighted out to uh umc uh, in lubbock in lubbock texas and they gave me another six vials but i was discharged the next evening about 26 hours after the bite my arm was swollen wow. for a week and after that the swelling went down and life was normal Yep. That's kind of kind of crazy as far as New Mexico, I would imagine snake bites, especially rattlesnake bites, are probably pretty common. So kind of surprising that they needed to bring you over to Texas. Well, I, the doctor that treated me is great. Can't say anything about him, but he likes to jump the gun sometimes. I, you know, I work for him, so uh, I think he was just worried because there weren't any surgeons on call. If uh, if I my arm got so bad that I got compartment syndrome, which means that it swells up so bad that there's no blood flow to it, they actually have to open you up and leave you open so your blood flow can, can return to your extremities. And he was concerned that was going to happen, so uh, he shipped me out. Yeah, we, yeah, we did a video about it. Oh, we need to go watch. <laughs> you would think that keeping you know, compression on that area, you would have at least necrosis in that area that you kind of kept it in. Well, we talked to, we did an interview with the guy from uh, the Venom interviews. Yes, Ray Morgan. Very smart time. guy, total statistician. He likes data. That's what he likes. And he uh, he argued the same thing about using one of these on a, on a bite that has uh, cytotox, cytotoxic venom. Yeah, that what could happen is that, that that venom gets encased there and then it starts damaging that area and you can still lose an extremity from it. My thoughts are is that if you get bit by a, a snake that has a cytotoxin, that if that spreads, it's that cytotoxin is going to go and wherever it goes, your, your system is going to get damaged. And the reason that that uh, venom lock is oval shaped is so that if that does occur, they can uh, they can surgically excise all the damaged area and then close it off. Uh, basically, my opinion is, is you want that venom to go as little into your system as possible until you start getting anti-venoms. I agree with that. I want it to affect only a small part of my body. If I have to lose a finger rather than losing an arm. Right, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, we saw it work firsthand. He's the first human trial 
unfortunately. Yeah. So there were some large mammal trials done where they did it on pigs. And it it seemed, I mean, the, the data shows that it worked very effectively. Uh, the animals that did not have used um, died quickly. And um, so this device is purely to buy you time until you can get to a medical facility. It's not a medical alternative. You need to go to the doctor if you get snake bit. And I mean, so we've got it in our pack for when we're out hiking because, you know, luckily we were 10 minutes from the hospital, but what if we had been four hours from the hospital? Yeah, if you're like at a, you know, looking for crotalus hordum and you're by a big windmill, but nothing else. <laughs> we got to see the video. That's pretty good. <laughs> well, I felt uh, the, the timbers seemed very, very laid back, and I've heard the opposite about the Atrox. So. Well, you got to remember this. I've heard that about the boons a lot, too. And it, everybody feels that way until they get bit. Exactly. <laughs> but also, he has a very, very fast animal that I would never. So is a timber. They're not. No snakes are slow. <laughs> I agree with her. One or like three. I mean, I wasn't getting close. No, I don't care. All right. If you were close to film that video. It could have gone into in a second. Like wow. that. We made it. How us and the other, you know, hundred other random people who don't work with snakes every day made it but or i was more worried about just seeing how high the like grass and stuff was you have no idea what oh, you're yeah, stepping you on right you could step on one and it could piss that's why we had so pissed and immediately it could sneak up in there okay well everyone wants to know of course <laughs> the the big question is how much does any venom cost <laughs> about 10 to thirteen thousand dollars a vial so oh. I'm over, <laughs> yeah, I'm over $100,000 in debt from it. Just from the, the profab, not from the airlifting, not from the hospitalization. Oh. Or... Not from all the doctors that came by and said, huh, that looks like a snake bite and got paid 300 bucks to do that. Just to look at it. And, yeah. and all the other staff who came and said, we look at that? <laughs> Yeah, so it's it's not a bite that you want. You don't want to get bit by a venomous snake if you can avoid it for a lot of reasons. But I'd say the cost is way more painful than the actual bite. <laughs> yeah, you basically just got uh, student loans. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> one big. But the thing is, I mean, it would be different because obviously you've kept hot before. And have you gotten bitten from private keeping? Uh <laughs> I like I like that answer. That was. <laughs> uh, I haven't. <laughs> actually, yes, I've been uh, bitten by a thing or two, and the effects were never serious. Um, I got bit by a Cerberus one time, force feeding it as a baby, and I got bit by a, a midget, a, a red pygmy rattlesnake, and that bite was actually very mild. Uh, I did have some swelling. Uh, the other. The... Yeah, so not only did he not seek medical treatment because it was no big deal, he went to the gym and he went from having a black and blue bruised hand to a black and blue bruised half of his body. So that was smart. Yeah, yeah don't the... live the day <laughs> Yeah, it's, it was uh, an experience, but 
it wasn't bad. Uh, I do have one nail that is a little misshapen because of it, but this is like years and years and years ago. It wasn't, it hasn't been recent. Um, that Aatrox bite was unique in the fact that I thought it might have been a dry bite for about 15 seconds. And then after that 15 seconds was over, I knew it wasn't a dry bite because it hurt bad. What is like, how can you explain that feeling? Yeah, compare it to something else. Well, have you ever had a tattoo? Yes. Okay. So it's like having a tattoo that goes about that deep into your skin. It's just a extreme burning sensation that it actually feels like when, when before we got the venom lock on, I could feel it spreading into the tissue, and that it just it just felt like it was burning, like like somebody was sticking a hot poker into my skin. It was intense. And how long does it take it to subside? Uh, seven days. <laughs> <laughs> so did the venom lock like change like reduce it by any like did it make it feel different at all or no the say that again when you put the the lock on it did it make the pain feel any different yeah it isolated it to the inside of it once i put that venom lock on you know i was still probably in shock a little bit i didn't feel Initially, I just felt the pressure of the venom lock, and then all of a sudden, from the venom lock in to where the, the inside of the lock is where the pain just started intensifying. And when I was going to the hospital, I actually considered taking it off. It hurt so bad. And mm -hmm. I was breaking my arm. But in comparison, I've been bitten by a redheaded centipede. I don't know if you guys had those when you were in Texas. And I haven't found one. <laughs> Please, I don't think well, they, they get about eight inches long, and that bite was just as painful. It just didn't last as long. And I I could talk with her when, when I got bit by the rattlesnake. I couldn't even talk to her when I got bit by that centipede. Yeah. And see, we've been stung by a lot of those around here, and they hurt. But that one was from Oklahoma City area, and we've heard that their venom is way more potent. And in our experience, it is, because he's tough. We were laughing. He was jumping, cussing. I mean, he couldn't even deal. No. It was not funny, but yeah, a little funny. <laughs> so the Aatrox bite was probably, on a scale of 1 to 10, I'd say it was 8 as far as being the most painful. And that centipede bite was probably a 9 and almost got to a 10 at certain points. It would come in waves. Come and go. Wow, so I don't know anything about centipedes, but I definitely want to know about that. So, first of all, why have you gotten bitten by so many of them? <laughs> and it's, why do you think, you know, one locale, you know, venom changes throughout, you know, different localities? Well, it was, it's what we were told. Um, somebody was, somebody that's worked with a lot of centipedes says that the ones that are further east of us are more toxic that they're the bites a little bit worse there was a guy that used to live in coppers cope texas what was his name and he used to carry around a bone you might have seen him at one of the shows oh, when you were in texas like he he died a couple yeah, of years ago oh. but he used to carry a bone from his thumb he got bit by a western diamondback and decided to heal it holistically and the bone rotted out of his finger 
And uh, he would not even mess with those centipedes because he said they were way more painful than anything he'd ever dealt with. And he's the one that told us that. Uh, around here, they, they live in the wild. So one day we were moving a pool outside and we lifted it up and the redheaded centipede uh, jumped up, wrapped around her leg and bit her three times on the foot. Yeah. And he was like, it's no big deal. And me, if there's no bag around and you want to catch the centipede, you got to grab it. I did try to catch it. It was too fast. Yeah. Well, what I'm saying, that's how I've been bitten so many times. <laughs> oh, yeah. He just picks them up and they bite him. And But now that I've been bitten by that one from Oklahoma, my the swelling gets a lot worse than it used to. So I'm probably developing some kind of allergic reaction to the venom. So I've seen three people bitten by Gila monsters and one person bitten by a Gila. I mean, a, a beaded lizard. And um, they will clamp down and gnaw. Their venom, their, uh, I don't know. I don't know. It is painful, but um, that wound will bleed. I mean, it looks like a massacre in the room because their venom is an anticoagulant and it will just, there's no way to stop the bleeding. You wrap it up, you put it underwater, and it just will bleed and bleed and bleed and bleed. So that's fun to watch. <laughs> <laughs> These are people that decided they want to mess with something. And oh, part, yeah. alcohol is involved in yeah, these situations. <clears throat> we don't drink when we, I don't drink at all, but we don't drink word if we're having to deal with something like that. If we're going out in the field, we're not drinking either. Because yeah. there's... Uh, two years ago, we ran across a Western Diamondback that we saw it come up, go off the road. We went over there with a the hook and messed around with it for 10 minutes, and never once did it rattle. And we started seeing more. We seen seeing that more and more often. That it seems like they recognize humans and they know that if they stay quiet, the humans won't see them, rather than trying to uh, to okay. rattle scare us away. So. Yeah, there was another incident with the Crotalus virtus of prairie rattlesnake where we were out field hunting, our dogs were with us, and we all had stepped over this snake a couple of times. Yeah. And uh, it was small, maybe 18 inches or 20 inches. And um, I wear boots, he wears tennis shoes. But um, So somebody was standing there, and then we, we had our lights and stuff, and I was like, uh, you're like straddling a virus. And I mean, our dogs were with us. That snake did not rattle. So we have a theory that the rattlesnakes are beginning to have some behavioral adaptations to know that humans are more dangerous if they do give off a warning signal. So yeah. kind of sad, kind of neat. How often are you guys like out hiking carpet? As often as possible, but the last couple of years we've been so busy with uh, all the animals that we don't go out much. Yeah, plus I decided to get my master's a couple of years ago, so for like two or three summers I was tied to my computer, although I got that last May. Uh, oh, thank you, thank you. I heard you have yours too, so congratulations. Yeah. Congratulations. So are you a pedagogist like she is? <laughs> I got my master's in education, so... <laughs> she did too, but yeah. she got it in pedagogy, and he likes to make fun of me for it. No, mine is just in like uh, early childhood education. Oh, wow. So, what ages are you? Do you specialize in? 
I teach ages three to six, so the little babies. Ooh, wow. Bless you. <laughs> I'm trying to get the heck out of elementary school right now. I just interviewed out of middle school today and high school tomorrow. I like them, but yeah, See, I, 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 I like children if you're listening. And, uh... I can't. I like I nanny for a fourth grader and a second grader right now and I'm just like every day I'm like oh I'm so glad I don't teach at all and so because like my little ones I can distract them with like a spoon like when they get angry just put something shiny in their face and like we're back to happy but like with the older ones they like know how to talk back to me and I can't redirect them as easy Oh, man. Language skills are key to uh, negotiations, in my opinion. You can't. Yeah, but, like, they're so good at it. You're tough, man. Like, don't know that sometimes my threats, like, I have nothing to back it up. But, like, <laughs> you know, like, there's only so much like I can do. Like, you're a teacher. You can't like, really do Right, anything. and I'm, I'm not their parent. So, like, there's only so much I can do. But my three-year-olds don't, like, they don't understand that. <laughs> and so I can threaten them, which sounds terrible. But I can, <laughs> I can With their life. I can say things to them and they'll, like, really believe it. You know, the whole I'm going to tell your mom trick works really well with three-year-olds, but not yeah. with nine-year-olds. Uh, you don't know my wow. mom. I, I still get threatened with that, and it works. <laughs> so, Marita, does, like, working with children and being a teacher, does that aid in the fact of you getting your point across and say, like, YouTube videos where generally, like, the audience is, you know, pretty young? Um, yeah, I think so. Um, first of all, my kids think I'm cool because I'm, like, a YouTube star, so that helps. Um, and you're also, like, tarantula girl. Like, so, you like bugs and yep. So I feel like our our channel and and my professional occupation really do go hand in hand. I feel like it's aided in kind of how we organize our videos. Um, you know, I mean, I can just kind of whip something up in my head really quickly and make it in a kind of a palatable format for pretty much anyone to see and say oh, you know, I just learned how to set up a tarantula enclosure or, you know, I just watched some rattlesnakes give birth or whatever the the uh, object or the task may be, I feel like we do a pretty good job of getting the central message across. We took both took a uh, sociology class here at, at town from a uh, same doctor, and he's a great guy. And in that class, what he teaches is that children until they're three years old should hear at least three million words and it's not worth your time to talk down to a child talk baby talk you want to talk to them like you would an adult so they can get that understanding so when we do the videos we actually discuss that i mean what level we want to talk at so we we aim to to educate as much as we entertain and try to keep the dialogue at a simple enough level that if somebody has a question, it's not going to be so complicated. They're not, they're just going to give up. They're actually going to try to pursue it. But on the other hand, not dumbing it down per se. I yeah. mean, we give the, the actual information. I do use some scientific terminology and people learn it. So. Yeah. We've got kids that are four and five years old that are 
spouting off scientific names when she's talking to them in the grocery store. They actually recognize her as the deadly tarantula girl. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Yeah. And they have yeah. great questions. Yeah, it's kind of surprising sometimes how much kids can actually learn. Like, we don't give them enough credit. Ah, oh, <laughs> that you say that. <laughs> but I think it's also underestimated that, you know, as teachers, you're basically giving, like, a public like presentation every single day you're talking in front every of a crowd single in a sense, minute every single of every single day yeah not once a day like eight hours a day five days a week yes yes and it, it's definitely and it helps you being a teacher helps you realize like oh different people learn differently like oh i need to say this three different ways in this video because someone may not get it for the first time right which makes me wonder why do i talk in our videos <laughs> not more than me. You've got many well, more years of to. knowledge. Yeah, but how did how did you guys first get into YouTube? I'll let you. It was a fight. Okay, uh, I started. We started getting back serious into tarantulas because we've both been in and out of them through the years. I did them in the nineties and had to get rid of my collection, and move, I moved to Denver, Colorado, from Montana. And we decided to start doing them again seriously because I had read them in the 90s. So I started watching YouTube videos. And there was this guy on there that looked like me. His name's Rob C. Clothed by Transfer Guy 90, 1976. He was the biggest guy. And I thought, well, I can do that. But look at that. That's way better looking. <laughs> and uh, she's, she's just as passionate about the animals. So I said, hey, why don't we start a YouTube channel? And she goes... Well, let me give you 10 reasons why we should. <laughs> One of which is that we'll never get found. Nobody will ever watch our videos. I always talk from here. I said that it was highly improbable, <laughs> which I still stand by. Which when you're a teacher, highly improbable means no. <laughs> so we actually sat down. We argued about it for a while. and We had a debate about it for oh, a while. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes, the, there's a difference between an argument and a debate. <laughs> so we sat down, we did a video. She actually edited it. We used Movie Maker off of our computer. So bad. And we published it. And the problem was, is when we published it, we couldn't find it. It disappeared into cyberspace. <laughs> and what we didn't know is that we had didn't know how to put the title in. So it was whatever the, the, the camera said. Was it was the, like BFD... One two nine seven six five three two one ABC. Yeah, and of course YouTube algorithm picked that up immediately, and there you blew up. No, so two weeks later, uh, we found it, and fifteen people had watched it through our minds. And she said, she said, well, that's encouraging. So we did another video. Basically, this I think it was pretty much the same thing. We found out how to title it and all that. And then we spent, we started doing videos pretty regularly. We were building our collection. We were starting to breed again and we we're raising this stuff up. And one of the things that, that was my goal with the channel was in the nineties, when you tried to breed a spider, there was the guys that were big in trance at that time was Russell Smith, Brian Capiz, uh, Rick, Rick West is the expert. He's still around, but he didn't do so much breeding. Uh, the dealers, Mark Hart, those guys were all out there, but you'd get, call them up and say, hey, 
I've got a male tarantula. How do how do I put it in with a female and how do I make babies? And they give you a very general answer. Well, you know, you just put them together. Sometimes the males will get eaten, sometimes they won't, and hopefully you'll get an egg sac. And that's not good information at all. They would intentionally withhold trade secrets to keep the monopoly. So our goal when we started this channel was to give all the trade secrets that we had learned. Now, the one thing that that's happening now is that uh, everybody's given trade secrets because that's one of the things that people look for when they're on YouTube. But the, the one thing we didn't realize was living in Montana compared to living in Roswell, New Mexico, it was a completely new learning curve. I wasn't dealing with the temperatures. The humidity was about the same, but I was living up in the mountains. The elevation was different. And you, even with, if you had, if you had your hand held all the way through the process of raising an animal and breeding it, you may not necessarily be, uh, you may not reproduce because if you live in a different environment, those animals are going to react differently. So a lot of people now are saying, yes, we can tell you how we do it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's going to work for you. And so uh, it was just back when we started that that information wasn't out there. And now that people have this, there's a lot more success, which we're very happy about. Yeah, that was our goal all along is to kind of break the community out of that shroud of secrecy, you know, just kind of that idea that if you figure out some little tweak for, you know, how to get your helis to breed, don't ever tell anyone, don't share. In fact, steer people in the opposite direction sometimes. And so we kind of wanted to fight against that. And I feel like, I mean, not probably just because of us, but um, that's gone away a lot. The community is pretty strong right now, I would say. In tarantulas and in reptiles. Tarantulas is kind of cutthroat compared to reptiles. Yeah, it is. Um, and back in, in the 90s, there were, I don't know if you ever heard a story about a guy named Mascareno. He was an actor that started to, to breed tarantulas. And he started bringing stuff in. He had a connection somewhere in South America and overseas where he's bringing all these tarantulas in, selling them, undercutting everybody. So Brian Capiz was uh, in Chicago. He was bringing stuff in from uh, from England. He'd go over there. He had a girlfriend, and for seventy-five bucks, he'd get a round-trip ticket to go to the American, uh, the British Tarantula Society, Society show, which is the, one of the largest in the world. He'd pick up all this rare stuff, bring it across, sell it. Import stuff that was taken into Europe because they're way ahead of us in the invert hub. Yeah, they're they're pretty serious about their their business, reptiles, everything, um, and. So they started fighting, those two, Brian Capiz and Mascareno. And there was a another guy, and I don't remember his name, but apparently Mascareno stole his wife. <laughs> wow. So he started getting together with Brian Capiz to, uh, to try to take him down because Mascareno was making a ton of money. He was importing all this stuff. Our very first, which, uh, let me get back to this, but... He, he, so they sent a fax to each other. Somehow Mascarino got a hold of it, and the guy said, let's kill him. And what he meant was, is let's take him, let's put him out of business. Well, Mascarino took it literally. <laughs> for six, he would come into the show in a disguise, and before the show ended, he put the disguise back on and leave out the back door. 
So, so there was a lot of drama going on. But another interesting thing about the time compared to now is that people are complaining about the cost of tarantulas. Back in 1994, when I got my first uh, Martinique tree spider, it was $30. Now, when you buy a Martinique tree spider, it's $30. So it's actually cheaper now than it was back in the 90s because the, the value of the dollar is less. So, and people are complaining about the cost. And in those days, like you had to send a self-addressed stamped envelope, wait for two weeks to get it back, and then... To oh, get a price list from someone to even see what they had. Yeah, and if there was something that you could afford, because I was making $3.83 an hour. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Wow. $30 spider was quite a bit of work for me, and I had a family. So uh, there's another story about that. But um, these people now, so you call the guy up and find out that everybody sent out a self-addressed envelope at the same time. The people that were making $10 an hour bought those spiders out, and you had to wait till the next round came around, which could be six months to a year. And now you decide you want one, you go into Google, and you put in, I want a Martinique tree spider, and there's 10 people there that says, we've got them right now. We'll ship it out tomorrow. Right. There was a lot of uh, instant gratification was not a thing that happened in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> Does that, in a way... Does that take away from a little of the lure of it, or are we better off? Well, if I was in the, if we were together in the '90s doing what we do right now, we'd probably have half the collection because it's not so easy. It wouldn't be so easy for us to get a hold of this stuff. So I think the the gratification is not as strong as it was, but the hobby is way stronger. I mean. When I was a kid, there was a book that had a Bell Eye Phase Varanus Varius. Slice monitor. Yeah, and those things are gorgeous. They're black and white. Now I see there's people reproducing them in the last couple of years here in the United States. Back in those days, well, about the turn of about 2000 or so, they were $8,000 a piece for wild cuts. And these things were being smuggled in, which, you know, smuggling, smuggling is smuggling. It's not a great thing, but. We wouldn't have any of these animals without the smugglers. So it's it's not that it's it's better or worse. It's just that it's different. Well, and I think overall, the uh, and also too the invert and the reptile community industry hobby used to be super duper niche. Now I would say it's practically mainstream. I mean. People still look at me cross-eyed at work when they find out what I'm going home to do. But, um, I mean, there's so many of us doing it now. It's really cool. I mean, it's just so cool to where it used to be just a very, very rare and unique individual that was doing it. And now you've got people that have seven racks of ball pythons that have every color you can imagine. Yeah. In the 90s, I had two ball pythons, could never get them to eat. And I was away, and that guy got a meeting, and it was it was there was no knowledge out there. I mean, we've got a whole I can't see it, but there's a whole bookshelf here that probably has 800 books that all came from that that day because that was the only way to get information. And you could write write the authors and uh, ask them, I have a specific question, and maybe they'd write you back. Now you can pretty much just email them, and 99% of the time they'll get back with you. Or, I mean, there's someone out there that will have the answer or have an yeah. answer or have an idea. 
I mean, you can jump on Facebook, Instagram, I mean, Google and type in the craziest question and you can find somebody that's got the answer pretty much immediately. It's amazing. It's amazing the way the world's changed. There's a mosquito bite wow. oh, wow. oh, Not in front of them. You don't murder bugs in front of them. Oh, okay. <laughs> Jeez, what was your question? Believe me, mosquitoes are the enemy, even here. <laughs> she was poking me like she had a question, and then when it's her time to ask it, she's... Well, because something was stuck in your blood. Sorry, oh, that sorry. was concerned Thank you for, for your well-being and your blood. Right, you can ask. Thank you. Appreciate it. Um, my first question was how long ago did you start your YouTube? I think their channel is or seven years old. 2013, I think, is when we started. Uh, about December of that year. Yeah, we have over 800 episodes. Wow. Damn, that's a lot. Well, we, I don't know. If you look at the transfer, the big transfer guys, we just found out recently that. John 3800 was the first guy on YouTube to do tarantulas. He's still doing it. He has like 14 or 1600 videos. So 800 isn't much. And uh, when we started, friends of ours told us we were, we were every time we do a video, we'd upload it. You know, it didn't matter what day of the week it was. He said, you want to quit doing that? Do it on a schedule because you're going to run out of stuff to do. And we still haven't. Mm-hmm. So... It's been a, a, now we decided, we've done reptiles through the whole whole YouTube channel from the beginning, but we kept them pretty low key because we wanted to become more, we wanted people to look at us for the information in a specific area. Well, now, there was there was less information accessible regarding uh, tarantulas, so we kind of wanted to start in that niche and grow it before we started uh, exposing our audience to reptiles because we thought it would probably be smart to um, stay specialized to kind of keep the attention of our audience. And so we didn't start, we didn't show any of our reptiles really for years, except very occasionally. And we found now that we've done it, that if we do a tarantula video, more often than not, within five days, we'll have a thousand views or more. We do a reptile video, which we do once a week now, uh, we'll get about 300 views in the same amount of time. So people look, we're, we're, we're a smaller niche, even with the tarantulas, as big as YouTube is now. And we get a better response from the audience with the inverts. But we've been excited about reptiles for so long, we just didn't want to hide it anymore. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't let that discourage you. Because I mean, our Instagram started with like all of pythons. And then I, was, I would start posting some corn snakes. And I wouldn't get any likes. And now, since I post corn snakes all the time, it flip-flops. So it's just like, with the amount that you put out there, eventually you'll get, like, equal amount reptile people as more people, you know? Well, we certainly hope so. And now we've kind of moved into doing this, the interviews with people, which was another huge battle. It's I tried to get her to go live for years. And she she didn't do it, and finally she did. And then I said, well, let's talk to somebody on the computer. Let's do some of these lives. Oh, no, we can't do that. For this, that, and the other thing. And now that we've done that, uh, now that we've built that up a little bit, we get okay views with it, but we don't get great views. And we're hoping that eventually 
that'll build up because we're looking for the history of of the keeping of reptiles and tarantulas. So we're always looking for people that can tell us about the old days. To us, it's more important to preserve those stories and document it so that will be accessible if anyone wants to see it rather than getting views by far. Yeah. And some of these people are getting pretty old and we want to get them before they move on to the Rainbow Bridge. Yeah. That's the struggle for us a lot of the times. A lot of the people that we or like we look up to and want to learn from, unfortunately, they're closer to that time than... But they're also, they also typically don't like to be on camera or don't want to use the technology involved. Because they're closer to that time. <laughs> There's so a direct correlation the, between closer to that time and well, yeah, disinterest in technology. <laughs> and so that's the hard part. Is like there's so many people that we love to learn from and just hear everything. But Maybe we can get them eventually. We'd have to person. drive or find a, a youngin. Uh, help them out. Well, we have to too. I mean, uh, our daughter is the one that sets up all the technology for us because neither one of us have a clue on how to do this live stuff. Yeah. Not at all. So uh, <laughs> she moved out. And... Now we're kind of floating along just trying to make it happen. <laughs> well, we're sort of at her mercy. She lives, she only lives about 12 miles away, so she comes home on the weekends a lot. That's why we do our lives on the weekends. But there's a guy that I know you're looking to try to interview that, or you said you were kind of afraid to, that I would like to also. And that's the guy from Stolen World, Hank Molt. I'd like to find him. Yeah, yeah, I think we can. <laughs> I swear we I need, wanna, like, a, we need like a PI, like a snake podcast PI. Like find all these guys that we don't know who, where, they're not on Facebook, they're not anywhere. I think like, I'm find within them. one degree. I'm within one degree of separation of Hank Malt. <laughs> That's cool. If you do that, uh, hook us up. <laughs> but, there you so, go. I may have to travel. But uh, you think you're to go visit him? I don't know. I don't know if he would be on the computer. I don't know. Um, I don't want to say where he is. You don't want to say where he lives? You don't want to put it out there? <laughs> no, no. Because if I'm wrong, because someone will tell me I'm wrong too, but that would be nice. Or if anyone knows the whereabouts, this can be like a... Uh... <laughs> I don't know. I've <laughs> tried this before, just putting things out there like, hey, connect. And sometimes with... it happens. True. Yeah, you never know. Well, we know people that have known him, but nobody, well, you know, we know Randallberry too. And uh, nobody has given us even an idea of where he's at. I heard last I heard he was in Pennsylvania, but I don't know if that's still true. Um, yeah. Was he in Florida? I don't remember where his ex wife moved to, but I heard he was living with her. Yeah, and I heard that that was the Midwest. So the fact that we have so many different ideas, I feel like we're not close. <laughs> yeah, he's right near you, uh -huh, wherever you are. Well, we, we missed out. If we would have done this a little bit earlier, there was a guy named Arthur Jones that he used to go back out to Africa and South America and he'd collect stuff and bring it in. And the guy became a multimillionaire doing just that. And then he started designing the Nautilus equipment and I, we found out from Earl Turner, which is an old, another old timer, he started the gray band stuff back in the 60s and the 70s, that he lived here in New Mexico, but he passed away in like 2011, and I didn't know that. And we could have, you know, possibly contacted him, but he was just quiet. He didn't want anybody knowing where he was, and it's unfortunate. 
that's how and those people but those people like die with their stories they never really tell anyone even though i mean at, at this point i don't ever encourage that but it's it's something that is part of our history and it's part of everyone's collection because hey to my left right here there's an olive python and hank malt brought that in from australia right you know allegedly so <laughs> yeah. it's nice to know this history you know we can't although i don't want to broadcast it to the world Any necessarily but like <laughs> I want to at least know what it's like so that we can appreciate at least what we have. And that's the thing is that the new generation doesn't understand that these ball pythons and these reticulated pythons and these olive pythons don't originate in the store. They think that some guy down the street bred them, and that's not how it started. I mean, a lot of these animals had to come in and get killed because we had to learn how to take care of them before they can get started. Look at the Bolins python. Ten years ago, Nobody was breeding bullens, and now all of a sudden, there's a couple people doing it, and that is not an easy snake to breed. I mean, they breed on the side of a hill in these big pits in the rocks. So how do you reproduce that? And the other thing about, you know, sharing information, I haven't heard anybody said, this is how I bred a bullens python. Nobody's sharing that right now. Well, I think Frederick in Europe, I think he is a little open about it, but he also... Um, it's had, maybe it has to do with his animals, but no one can really replicate it. Plus he doesn't seem to like have exact details of everything. It's just his pair seems to work. Really? So do you know if they're dropping actually in the cage or does he have to put them in a big garbage can? How does he do it? I, I have no idea. I'd be the wrong person to ask, but I think they, uh, there might be a Morelia Python radio with him from back in the day. Okay. Well, but can... I think I think right after he bred them, he actually went on there and talked about it. But... Oh, cool. Well, I know that uh, Nerd just reproduced some, didn't they? And... No, I don't want to get into that. <laughs> <laughs> you know some juice? We got to hear the juice, man. No, I mean, things said they were captive bred from different bloodlines, but uh, there's no one... There's no one producing two clutches of bowling pythons somewhere. So and whatever captive bred, we're not sure what that. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah. So maybe captive born. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. I just saw that, uh, what's the name of the big ball python? JKR just got some bowlings from it, and they were babies, so I thought maybe uh, he had figured it out. Because that guy, what's his name? Kevin McCurley? Kevin McCurley is really good at bringing art stuff. The guy is a genius when it comes to uh, learning about how what animals need to reproduce. But he just picked up, he just picked up like a pair and threw them together and expected them to breed the first year. And I don't think, I don't think he has had success yet. And he's pretty much, I think, getting to the same place that Ari is getting as well. And a few of the other guys, it's like uh, they get him to lock up but they can't seem to get eggs for whatever reason. Or some guy just got plugs in Europe, but for whatever reason, they're not they're not getting eggs. They can get copulations, but... Oh, see, I haven't been looking into them because they're way out of our price range. But we've got a friend in, in uh, Oklahoma, Chris Curtis. He, he has a pair of trio, and he's open to breed them too. So we're hoping to get the secrets from him if he's able to do it. But you kind of have to have an end on stuff like that. You know, there's these people that are like the lace monitors, 
and the water monitors. So we have a water monitor. We want to pair it up, but I don't have any idea if we'll ever get them to lock up. And that kind of worries me. I don't even know if the information's out there to, to see how to do it. And I, we'd love to, everything we have, we want to reproduce. Yep. And some things that are very easy for other people, we don't have any luck with. Out of our corn snakes this year, we have three females. We got one clutch eggs. And I don't know if it was too cold or what. Shame. What's going on? <laughs> and when I was in Den when I was in Denver, I did quite a few corn snakes and didn't have any problems. But I could get them a lot colder there too. Yeah, that is that is super helpful. Plus, it's like once you, I'm sure you know. Once you kind of focus in on something, it's easy for me to produce corn snakes because that's all I'm doing. So everything's on the same schedule, everything's going. But you guys have so many different things going on. It's probably much harder to focus on each species. Yes, we have this discussion once a day. Yes, and she wants to go to just one or two species, no, and no, I no, want no, to go no, no. to 20 or 30 more no, species. Oh, I just think that. Like these guys love reproducing them. And, but they are so much work. You know, you get these little babies and they eat thousands of crickets. They're it's very expensive. They have lots of babies. Yeah, they, uh, how many? We had together? 60 from one female. She triple clutched. She had like 20, eggs, 18 eggs, and then 22 eggs. Man, that's so much work. Those babies, they need daily care and they'll eat each other, literally. They'll just eat each other's toes and tails right off. They don't get enough food fast enough if you're cohabbing them. So I have a dream to build a big outdoor container that has like a quarter by quarter inch uh, hardware cloth on the top that the bugs can crawl in and just put all the babies out there. And when they get about 18 inches long, sell them. <laughs> That's what I want to do. And this is a beautiful animal. But... We, we actually bred her this spring and yeah. haven't gotten any eggs yet, so... She digs around in her box, but I don't know if she'll lay or not. She's not huge, so... She's not bad size. No. You know, I don't even have any clue on how to breed a, a bearded dragon. You put them together, the boy jumps on top of the girl. A couple months later, you get eggs. No. It's really that simple. It's the cutest. They have the cutest mating rituals. Uh, he'll go up to her and he'll he'll do like this little bulldog stance and he'll start bobbing his head up and down and then he'll wave his arm like that. I'm not kidding. And then she'll do it back and then things go down. And then Is there like a formation process before? Yeah. Uh, it's actually more like leopard geckos. They just kind of cycle about 10 months of the year. And if you, if you have them in close proximity and then start introducing them after a good meal, a lot of times they'll do it for you. We don't cool them or anything. And we've had luck through the years, but this year was not a good year for us. Yeah. For so, and this one is a color morph. And it seems like the more you get into something like some of these extreme colored ball pythons, they tend to seem to have less of a, uh, more of a failure to thrive. And so they've got all these color uh, beardits and there's some that are actually scaleless. That's what they're called, silky. Leather, yeah, silky. And I've heard, we've heard from a good breeder here in town. He says, you don't want to try to breed those. And you can't breed a silky to a silky. It's kind of like the spider gene. So uh, it seems like the more that they're getting the exotic colors on them, the more problems that are starting to occur. 
dude, you need to you need to lube them up. The silkies, you need to lather them in lotion. So do you know how to take care of the scaleless corn snakes? Do you have to do the same thing? I don't believe so. I think the corn snakes, just because they have uh, ventral scales, unlike, say, the ball python that doesn't have ventral scales, for whatever reason, that seems to make them hardier. I've heard that they they can be, like, prone to cutting themselves yeah. on, like, uh, branches, stuff like that. I mean, they don't have any scales, but uh, it seems like they're, like, the hardiest version of scaleless, but I don't have any. Well, as far as bearded are concerned, I just like the normals. I like the what they used to call the, what are the red ones? Bob Mylou started producing a red more and sandfires. And I just want to do those. I don't want to do any that, that I have to spoon feed every night because we don't have time. Or rub lotion on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I, I remember just listening to guys talking about, you know, scaleless ball pythons and you have to do, or they're trying at least to do something similar with those as well, rubbing lotion on them. And it's just like, why are you, why are you even fucking with this at this point? Like, can't you just be okay with the thousand other morphs that you have? You got to take the fucking scales off of it and rub it with lotion. Well, I've never had a scaleless snake. I've never had a two-headed snake. Uh, I've never had a, we actually did have one, uh, chimera what are those called a paradox a paradox snake we produced some and they failed to thrive they died after about a month after they were born some boas uh you gotta try it out i mean how do you know you're not you, you're gonna like it if you don't try it don't knock it till you rock it is that your motto <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> you never know snake lotioning might be your most favorite pastime in the world that would probably be a good youtube video but melissa would have to do that one <laughs> <laughs> well, they they make lots of uh, uh, remarks about how uh, scaleless ball python feels. I think it's kind of funny. <clears throat> yeah, <laughs> but That's true. You know, one of the guys that uh, we're dealing with right now, Earl from Mozart Reptiles, great guy. He thinks that the trick to ball scaleless ball pythons is less humidity. He thinks that people are keeping them too wet, and that's what's doing them in. I don't know. I want to try it myself. So you're into it. Yeah. I don't know about the lotion thing. I'm not a big fan of lotion. So she likes to slather herself in lotion. <laughs> I can't stand it touching my skin. Just, dude, I hate the oiliness. Yeah. He, he won't even... Oh, I was about to get a little TMI. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Even if I put like lotion on myself, like you won't touch me if I have like too much lotion on me, which is so strange. I don't understand. I know exactly what you're saying because that's exactly how I feel. It's just it's not natural. It's smooth. Smooth is natural. You want to be smooth. Uh, you want to touch skin. I don't like having. It's kind of like condoms. I don't want anything in between me and the pleasure. I want, <laughs> I want direct, direct contact. <laughs> Just the way I am. There you go. <laughs> and I mean, luckily, I mean, Irish kids don't get ashy, so that's probably the main. Yeah, that's only half of our relationship is Irish. I have to wear lotion. I know, but I'm saying I don't, so I guess I'm just not used to it. Gotcha. And you grew up in a family. You're kind of like don't... a scaleless ball python. Oh, really? Yeah. Thank you. That's the first I've been compared to that. 
what can I say? <laughs> so we didn't we didn't really get into uh, breeding tarantulas since you were talking about how people used to withhold this information. Can you give some like general guidelines on how to breed tarantulas? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So there are certain species that are more shy than others. So um, like the almost the entire genus of Postlotheria pretty much is not going to breed in front of you if you waited a thousand years and grew a beard down to the floor. So you just have to risk cohabitating them. And so it, ideally you do that. Uh, we have large breeding chambers. So what we actually do is we put both of their habitats inside the large breeding chamber and just take the lids off. That way they both have their own enclosures, but yet it's kind of like just letting them out in the yard together. They can both go into their little homes, but they can also come out and be exposed to each other. And that way they both have access to their regular pheromones and their own little nests, but they do have access to each other in kind of a controlled setting. Um, I don't like doing that, but it's really the only way to do it. Most species I will supervise the breeding and sometimes it takes forever. If you ever see a breeding video, know that that was like five hours of me sitting there trying not to, you know, I don't know, pick up my phone or whatever, because sometimes it gets a little bit tedious. Um, so um, for the most part, I basically open both enclosures. I introduce the male to the female. Um, there are signs that you want to look for in most species. It's pretty easy to tell when the male has matured because he'll have a large pedipalpal bulbs, which basically tarantulas look like they have 10 legs. The ones in the very front are shorter. Those are not legs. Those are pedipalps. On the end, they have a little boxing glove looking uh, suction cup. And the males will actually lay a really long skinny web and the males don't tend to web a whole lot. And they'll actually deposit sperm onto it. And then they go with their pedipalpal bulbs and suction it up. And then they keep it in there until they find a lovely lady. And so once you see that sperm web, you know his pedipalpal bulbs are charged. Yeah. You breed aliens, I'm concerned. Pretty weird. Oh, this isn't this. So then uh, you'll see the males are not sexually mature until their ultimate molt. So that is their final molt. They're going to die after that. Some of them live for six to 12 weeks after that. Some of them live, can live for a few more years after that, depending on, they, their lifespans vary a lot uh, from species to species. Females, on the other hand, sexually mature once they reach adulthood, but they'll continue growing, they'll continue molting. So on your female, you just wanna make sure that she's a certain uh, adequate size, age, body weight. Once she gets to be about that big, you can introduce a male to her she may not be mature or fertile yet, but sometimes introducing that male will actually um, encourage her to molt again and actually sexually mature. So that's kind of cool. So you put them together and a kind of universal tarantula breeding behavior is um, him doing a toe tapping motion. It's just where they kind of stomp the ground with their legs. And also they will tremble their bodies. 
And so for the most part, you have females inside burrows with web or, or uh, in a tree with web. And that vibration is going to tell her, I'm not a prey item, I'm here to get it on. To get it on. And um, so then if she is feeling like reciprocating, she'll also start tapping and vibrating. Then you wanna see them come, you wanna see them face each other, and then she'll rear up and bear her fangs. Now, that's where it goes terribly wrong sometimes. Sometimes she eats him. And so I like to supervise, I use fishnets and uh, like long tweezers. And I actually will kind of like put them in between them. And then if I see like real friendly interactions, which sometimes looks like she's gonna cannibalize, there's a real fine line in tarantula breeding. If I feel like she may not eat him, I will uh, slowly withdraw the tweezers. And sometimes I still do have to kind of jump back in. And um, to toot my own horn, I rarely, rarely, rarely lose males during breeding, which that's a pretty big deal. So um, what he needs to do, most mature male tarantulas have a tibial spur, which is a little hook on their front leg. It's a little fork. And so what they will do is they will use that to actually um, hold up the female's legs, her front legs. She has a slit on her belly called an epigastric fold. And um, so he needs to be able to access that while her fangs are going, I'm gonna kill you. So he's gotta hold her legs up. So they're both rearing up at this point. And so he's got to get his pedipalpal bulbs and pump them into her epigastric fold and deposits the sperm. Really interesting. And then he's got to get back out before she decides, okay, I'm done. Now I'm going to eat you. And so then sometimes during the breeding, she'll decide to eat him. Sometimes after the breeding, she'll decide to eat him. Um, a lot of people But the the male's going to die anyway. True, true. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the, the male's goal is usually to get out of there and breed another female before he croaks. So, um, once, uh, so once they disengage, I move her away from him and they usually run off. I put him back in his enclosure. I put her back in her enclosure. I feed, I water. So at that point, conception has not occurred. What's interesting is the females will continue eating, growing, and when they decide they're ready, which is a totally undetermined amount of time, uh, could be a year, it could be a week, she starts to develop eggs inside of her, and only once she has a full abdomen of eggs, she'll start uh, knitting a little sack, and different species of tarantulas have different types of egg sacks. Some of them have kind of like hammock egg sacs that they suspend off a wall, like some arboreal species. A lot of them have a circular egg sac that they'll hold underneath them on the ground. Um, and so once she is, she starts knitting the egg sac, she delivers the eggs essentially into the egg sac. When they pass through her epigastric fold, that's the point in which some of the eggs or all of the eggs get fertilized. So it's really, really weird. 
Um, then she's got to take care of the egg sac and all of that stuff then for several weeks. And so sometimes we let the moms raise the egg sacs up and sometimes we pull them at a certain point because a lot of moms then eat their babies. So there's a lot of cannibalism going on. And, and also, how does the sperm last that long? Like throughout all the process, the sperm is just being thrown around, doing whatever the hell and being held for whenever, for later. Yeah, that's a crazy thing. So actually, she can, that sperm is viable until she molts again. If she molts again, then she loses the deposit. So if you have, say, a Smith eye or a Hamora that's been bred. Mexican red meat. Yeah, yeah um, a year ago, and she hasn't molted yet it's still possible that she may produce from that male. And often with the Brachypelma species, which come from Mexico all the way into Central and South America, they they will breed in the summer about this time of the year, and the female won't drop eggs until spring of next year. Oh. So she stay in that fold all that time. She'll eat through the fall, she'll cover herself up, and when she starts feeling the rain storms coming in, then she'll drop that egg sac and try to hatch out the babies about the same time the insects start um, coming out of the ground. And some species of tarantulas, well, I would assume they probably all can, but they can actually double clutch from one breeding as long as they haven't molted again. So they'll lay a whole nother egg sac uh, a period of time after the first egg sac. Have we ever had one triple? Okay. So is there any rhyme or reason to that female when, when she molts? Uh, yes. So essentially when she grows too large for her exoskeleton and needs more room, that's what's going to prompt her to molt again. But that's uh, different for everyone. Yeah. I mean, so there are, there are species of tarantulas that have a three-year lifespan. There are species of tarantulas that have a 25-year or plus uh, lifespan. Females tend to live longer than males. So in general, um, the slower growing, the longer their lifespan is, which, you know, that makes sense. Um, and so some of them aren't sexually mature for five, six, seven, eight years. And some of them you can get sexually mature if you buy a spiderling by the next year. So it's, it's really, there's a lot to learn if you want to work with tarantulas. And some people specialize with tarantulas. There are boreal, there are terrestrial. So some spiders live up in the trees, some live underground. And other people will specialize by continent because they're found almost all the way around the world. Or they like one genus or something. Yeah. We, again, we're crazy. We like it all. If it's pretty, we'll get it. Pretty much. And what we try to do is because the males only last for that one season, we try to raise up spiderlings from different egg sacs so that every year we have a continuing cycle of males because um, they, they're not going to last forever like the females can. Yeah, and we like to have a harem of females ready for that male when he matures. And we do a lot of breeding loans because there will be these, you know, smaller keepers that, you know, their one tarantula that they had became a male and then it's just going to die. So they'll be like, well, at least we want them to breed. And so they'll send us their male or we have a male and they have a female. And so ultimately, some of them don't even want offspring. They just want their animal to be able to reproduce. But usually we give them half the egg sac. So which... an interesting story to her telling this is uh, when we first started the channel, she actually explained it just like she did there. 
and someone decided to make a comment, I just laid a sperm web on my stomach. And that grossed her up for years and she would not use that word. What would she call it? Deposit. Uh, That's what it was yeah, after that. I, until I, the last six to eight months. <laughs> yeah, somebody was saying, oh, I was looking at you and I just laid a sperm web on my stomach. And I thought that was, I've heard some gross things in my life, but for some reason that just grossed me out so bad. And why is it like to a man, that's like the funniest thing I've ever heard. But Melissa's also like, that's the most disgusting thing she's ever heard. And of course, I'm visioning like the most disgusting person. Oh, yeah. It's not an attractive person. It's definitely. No. Yeah, no. Yeah. It's definitely someone gross in their bedroom living in their mother's basement. Most that's likely. exactly what I would have said. Ugh. Yeah, gross. Ugh. Okay, so you're... We, <laughs> Except, you know what weirdly we though? So Wait, before that though, you know what weirdly is? When she said that, my brain went to Spider-Man. Okay. Spider-Man yesterday. And like webs. Yeah. I don't sure. Know. Okay. I, just, I thought of Spider-Man. I was like, whatever. Um, but you're talking about breeding loans, and it made me think. So with snakes, we have like a period of time where we don't ship out because of the weather. I literally know nothing about spiders. So is there a period of time where you're not shipping? Right. Is, is a tarantula a spider? Sorry. Yes. Yes, they are, actually. They're not a true spider, but they are a spider. And one of the bigger questions that's been coming up on the channel recently is that all invertebrates are considered animals. They're in the same kingdom. So you call it an animal, it's... I mean, humans are animals. Mammals are animals. Invertebrates are two animals, and people are like, "You're an idiot. That's not an animal." And I'm like, "You're an idiot. Yes, it is." She doesn't say that. I, I never but have. She thinks it. Oh yes, I do. <laughs> no, I get all scientific on them and offer like, "Oh, here's the kingdom and phylum, and you're a moron." Yeah. But I think I think at least uh, no. Let her answer my of... question. Okay. Yes, it's basically the same as snakes. Um, now, for us, we have um, days in December when it's plenty warm enough to ship. So, if we're shipping from here to Florida and it's 72 degrees here and 78 degrees in Florida, we'll ship that day. So, I wouldn't say there's a season that's shut, that, you know, we're shut down from shipping because we do live in a warmer area. But, um, yeah, you, you do want, you have to use heat packs, cool packs. And there are times when you don't want to ship out due to extreme, either extreme hot heat or extreme cold temperatures. Yes. Yeah, but I have shipped spiders out of Montana in the wintertime, and it gets pretty cold up there. Um, it's not, I would say because it's a smaller animal and it's encapsulated, rather than sending them in a bag, which is not holding any heat, you put them in an actual vial or straw. Oh, that's and that air actually, yeah. That Wait, actually, in a straw? Yeah. When a spider, baby spider hatches out, it can be less than a quarter of an inch. I mean, we're talking fruit fly size. And how quickly do they hatch out? Are you sending them? Well, we have to. It's There's a cycle there, too. Uh, there they're, the eggs are laid within two weeks to, 20, to 21 days. They become what's called eggs with legs. And that's exactly what they look like. They look like an egg that has these little little things sticking out of them that just kind of go like this. Yeah, the first molt stage, 
it, it they definitely look alien. It looks like a little teeny tiny white ball just with these funny little things sticking out. So their their uh, first instar, their first molt stage is called eggs with legs. And then they go molt into the well. That's actually not the first instar. That's, that's true. The yeah. Then they molt into their first instar, and at this point they look like little tiny spiders, but they don't feed at this stage. Uh, and then they molt out one more time, which could take six to eight weeks. I think it's even up to 12 weeks of some species. And then they're to the feeding stage, except for a few species in Africa, they need one more molt before they actually make the feeding stage, a third instar. So yeah, and, a reputable breeder will keep them until they're in a feeding, you know, a, a feeding age. And that's a lot of babies to take care of. But when they first have second instar, they don't typically eat each other for a little period of seven to 10 days. Most of the hatching happens in the spring. So if somebody's done a breeding load with us, with us which last year we had 1,500 babies. Out of one egg sack. We divided Repeat them that. All. Sorry, it glitched for a second. Repeat that. We had 1,560 babies out of one egg sack last Get year. So half of that went to another guy. Thank God. So at that instant, when they molted in the second instar, we packed them all up into a big container and shipped them to them. Which normally you have to house them individually. Yeah. And what we do is we chase them around like lunatics until they crawl into a straw. And then you... Yeah, and then you have to take paper towel, cut a hole in... The, we use 18-gauge needles, poke holes in the straw... And getting them into the straw is not very easy. They don't want to go in there. And then you got to take paper towel, put them in the ends. And if you've got a hundred spiders, we're going to be up all night doing that. Seriously, it's a, yeah. it's not a fun part at all. So imagine those sixteen hundred babies trying to pack them all into straws. Which we didn't. We put them all together yeah. because right after the molt, they're not going to eat each other for about seven to ten days. So that guy got him, and then he had a couple days to unpack them. And uh, he said that he sold them within a month. He was sold out. And we sold ours just about as quick. Yeah. Wow, that is crazy. So it is. I mean, do you have to kind of double think sometimes, like when you want to breed tarantulas? <laughs> yeah, I don't know what, you why that phrasing Second goes. guess. Second guess. Not double think. <laughs> Like, you're like, are we sure we want to breed that many pairings? Or, Well, we actually have a spider that was uh, sent to us about a year and a half ago called the Lassiodora parahibana. And those spiders are famous for dropping 2,000 babies at a clutch. Now, the reason it was sent to us is we were hoping we could find a female because we don't have one. And we actually have just located one. Uh, and the people were hoping that they could only get maybe 20 or 100 out of that egg sac. And we deal with the rest. Uh, so if if we can get this female, then actually half half of them, up to half of them, can go to either one of those people if they want that many. If they don't, then we'll ship out what they want and we'll keep the rest. Some of the bigger breeders we have not experienced this yet because we haven't had that many spiders. We'll actually keep them together and let them eat each other till they get down to a manageable number. Right? Like please, please, please. <laughs> Well, what we do do is we do individually house, feed, and water every single animal. Yeah. So we spend four or five night hours every night when that happens 
And uh, just we eating make, babies. That's the time to hit us up because we make great deals at that time. At midnight, he's <laughs> emailing and say, "Hey, what can I get these for?" He's saying, "Give them all. Give them all. Ten dollars. Make me an offer." Yeah. <laughs> so after the the malt where they're in the feeding stage, are they still in straws or are they big, too big? For oh, no, no. We, we just put them in straws for shipping. Yeah. They live in little uh, deli ramekins uh, for their, their housing. Like yeah. three ounce deli cups and for the arboreals, there's a little pill vial that's about three inches tall and we'll put the arboreals And in we there. just get Coca-Cola cases, like cardboard cases and just have stacks and stacks of them. Yeah. So does it actually benefit them to? Uh, <laughs> does it actually benefit the uh, the spiders in any way to have them have their first meals be you each know other. each other? Well, there's always the the theory that only the strong survive. So, you know, in ball pythons or corn snakes, even you get some babies that hatch out that are not as strong. That's why everybody cuts the the egg sac. So that genetic will carry on to the next generation. Probably the same thing is true with the spiders. In the wild, maybe 4% of those babies that hatch out will make it to adulthood. All the rest get eaten. Yeah, uh, in theory, if you allowed them to cannibalize like that, you'd wind up with the elite, you know, genetically superior. But probably they're all just blind and deaf walking around, and whoever bumps into who first is who eats. Just like reaches out, oh, I got something. (laughs) Baloney, yeah. <laughs> Is there any yeah. amount of like uh, random die off from you know? Say you have two thousand babies, you gotta expect some of them to randomly just drop dead. In captivity, if they're properly taken care of, of course anything can happen. You know, if you don't give an animal water, it's gonna die. So yeah, that's why we spend four or five hours a night taking care of them. But generally, in captivity, I've heard as much as. Ninety percent of the egg sac surviving to adulthood, but wow. you know this is this is an animal that is spoon fed every day, every week, or often they're fed and taken care of the proper humidity. So they there's there is some attrition, but not as much as you would think. And there is a portion that will fail to thrive no matter what. I mean, they're just. We had a species that came in. I've we've waited for years and years to have called Stromatophyllum calciatum. Feather leg baboon out of Africa. Nasty spider, beautiful. We raised them up until they were about six or seven inches just before maturity. We had eight or nine of them. Every single one of them died. Within like a month. Yeah. And like every week, two more were dead. It just. There was something wrong with them genetically, maybe too much inbreeding. But when they all die off like that, there's two, two possibilities. One, you're keeping them wrong, which we'd had them for years and raised them up to that size. So that doesn't seem to be the case. Or two, there's something wrong with them genetically and they're just a time bomb. They get to that point and... and Science or nature won't allow them to reproduce. Yeah. Weirdly, we've raised softbirds, African softbird rats through the years. And there have been two instances that we know of that the colonies across the country crash kind of all at once yep. of African softbirds. I mean, from far away, it's not like us and our neighbors and their neighbor all across the country. And it's probably environmental. I don't know if you know, but the ball pythons, 
all the breeders are saying that their that their eggs, their females are dropping late. Whatever for whatever reason this winter, the females decided to wait a little longer to start ovulating, and then and not then, just all python. I felt like a lot of the people we talked, and cars were late. I feel like a lot of people we talked to were like some weird happened this year. Especially the, the the carpet guys are just having a tough year all together. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. There's just something about, and maybe I mean here we had a mild winter, so that explains for us like the colubrids. But, but people like Dwight and his Kingsman, like he's in tech. I mean, confusing him and Brett. He's in the Midwest. Jesus, he's in the Midwest. But like he had a late year with his king. Like, a lot of people, something about this year was rolling. I'm not sure what. I don't know. The same thing happens with tarantulas. There'll be years about uh, five or six years ago, Reviculary Versicolor is a staple. You produce Versicolor, you can sell Versicolor all day long. That year, people were freaking out because in January or February, that normally that's when they start hatching out and they're all over the place. There weren't any to be had in the U.S. So people were saying, oh, the populations are crashing. And at that time, we actually had an egg sack, but we hadn't, it hadn't hatched out yet. And talking to other breeders, we found out for some reason, Versicolor that year just dropped late. And then a month a month went by, and all of a sudden, versus color were everywhere again. Mm-hmm. So there's there's environmental factors that we don't know we don't know what it is that, that causes these animals to behave the way they do. What is that kind of effect on the market as far as if one person's successful, you there's have shit you know all of a sudden there's <laughs> fifteen hundred available extra animals. more. So it's it's highly fluid the tarantula market. People like to ask me, oh, when you reproduce, you know, X, Y, and Z, how much is it going to be? It depends on the month. It Sometimes we're the only people that have what we have. And sometimes they're all over the place. So It's just like ball pythons. Uh, it's supply and demand. The, the supply stays pretty consistent. You've got new people coming in. This, the more advanced people looking for the rare stuff. And then the extremely advanced people looking for the ultra rare stuff. And the new ones coming in are the ones that are starting to get interested in the Versicolors and the green bottle blues. So the market doesn't fluctuate on those species very often, but there's a species called the Journal uh, Cosmirinus, Starburst Baboon. Mm-hmm. Back when I was started in the 90s, they were all brown. And then all of a sudden, somebody found a locality of them that they were all orange. So the OB, they're called the OBT, orange bitey thing, nasty little spider. And ironically, they seem to get along pretty well with each other during reproduction. You hardly ever see a, a male get eaten. But as of when we got back into it, I started looking for the brown ones. Nobody had them. They were the same species, so everybody started breeding the OBTs into the, the brown ones, and they all turned orange because people were getting $2 more for them. Now, if you were to try to find that spider, it'd be three times the cost of the OBT due to the rarity. Mm. So flip flop. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, same thing happens in snakes. You know, ball pythons used to be a trash snake, and now they're, you know, so highly sought after. And you know, colubrids are coming back right now. I mean, yeah. it's just you know, things happen in trends and waves. And- yeah, we even see it in like just one mutation in ball pythons. All of a sudden, Justin Cabelka hatches one, and black pastel is huge. They're like you know, a random gene that was underappreciated. And yeah, and with colubrids right now, we've got a friend that 
he loves money more than he loves his snakes, and he loves his snakes. So he's he watches the market, and he told us last year that the colubrid market was about to jump up because everybody had cycled all the way through. They had gone from the beginner to the middle grade to the very advanced, and then they got rid of all their stuff, and then nobody had them anymore. So the Mexican black king snake was a $100 snake a couple years ago. We paid $300 for a pair last year, and I love that snake. I used to breed it. And, and that's a deal, by the way. Right. That's a good, a pair I've is seen a great deal. way more than that. Well, that's a funny story, too. <laughs> so whenever there's negotiations to be done, I send her. I say, can you go see if you can get a deal on that snake? Because I went and talked to that guy, and he said, the price is the price. And almost every time, she'll get him to, to drop their price. So you need to learn that, too. If you, if you want to deal with somebody, send her and let her sweet talk and get your price down. <laughs> that's what yeah you need a girl who can talk on the same level as the breeder even like and they're yeah. like holy shit this girl also knows what she's talking about like well you got to be able to gauge them because sometimes those guys like dumb girls <laughs> so you they got to kind of like oh what's that that's really cool that's two hundred dollars i that seems like a lot of money and they'll say well you know for you We'll drop the price 50 100 bucks. That's <laughs> short. Well, okay. Maybe I, did. I think that's part of we haven't bought uh, a female to go with our MBK just because I know what the price could be and I see them and they just make me mad. Which we're just kind of fucking ourselves over because, like, we should probably bite the bullet to make the babies, but I know. I could have gotten one for $80 like a couple of years ago. So it just, the, like, it pains me too much. Even better, we're going to get an adult female this year. If you oh, speak okay. it, it might not happen. Oh, sorry. Never mind. Nothing happening. Um, but you guys, so you guys have a pair as well? We do, but we got our female got out. And she got caught in a rat trap. So she got a little bit of skin. A, glue, a glue trap. Yeah. A glue trap. So. Yeah. And uh, so she doesn't look so pretty, but she's eating for us. So we're hoping that we'll get her through this, you know, a couple she's, of sheds. Yeah, she shed one time and looked a lot better. She's back to normal behavior. She's just got some scar galation. Yeah. So I think she'll recover fully. That's just, it's just sad to see your little baby stuck to that. But we breed rodents, so, you know. You gotta have gotta those have traps. <sighs> I'm in trouble. I'm so. I saw the first rodent in our house yesterday, and it wasn't he one for me. He claimed it's not one from him. His minor white. He didn't dumb. see it. I saw it super fast. I think it was great, but it was moving hella fast. I don't know, but like mouth. the ten percent of me wants to say it's one of yours. I saw one in the shed the other day, or like two months ago. They're all over. Don't tell me that. Oh, I mean, that's the only one in all of Philly. I think that's the only Thank one. Thank you. Yeah, that's hard. And you think it's one of his. So, what is your what's your guys' dream projects? Um, I don't, they always change. I think like Palmetto, what we're doing, which is exciting. My next one is going I, but like, is that dream dream or is that just like? Because like blackheads always been oh, our yeah. Yeah. dream animal. But I don't know if I I'm not care trying to, to reproduce them. them. I'm not trying to breed them, but I want I want a blackhead. But 
the frugal part of me doesn't know if I'll ever be able to like justify dropping that money on a blackhead. But it's I mean, probably going to be a purchase you buy secretly and come home, and I'm pissed at first, and then I'm really happy you did it. <laughs> yeah, a time we'll be able to get leverage on someone eventually. Eventually, we will have something that someone wants yep. in order to exchange for it, and that's the Do best way to shit. So you're talking about black-headed pythons, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, very cool snake. She doesn't She doesn't think they're all that impressive. I like them. She likes the Walmas better. Oh, see, I love blackheads way more than Walmas. Is it just because of the rarity or because of how they look? How they look. It's in a... I'm only... I'm particular about my blackheads. I like the high, like, red in the... The rest of the body, obviously, not the, the Swiss. They're called the Swiss line blackheads. Um, God, they're gorgeous, and a thousand plus. Which I forget if that's the Western or the Eastern species for the more initiated. I think it's the Westerns that are in, but I could be totally wrong. I have to fifty chance. But what is as yeah. far as you guys? Oh, I had a question. I have a total new question that I've been wanting to ask the whole time. Okay, total person who knows nothing about things with legs, compare what people think a tarantula is going to feel like versus what a tarantula actually feels like. That's a good question because most people, if they don't like spiders, they ain't going to touch them. They're... Well, so I guess people who are interested in them and kind of like them, like would be willing to touch think they're going to be really soft and they are but what touches you are their toes and they actually have like a bipedal claw tarantulas have claws that's called their tarsi their toes and they hold on to you with them so it feels kind of pinchy like kind of like they're pinching you when they walk so that does freak people out. So I was like borderline maybe one day I'll let it walk across me. Yeah, no, but you I'm made it. You made me not want it. <laughs> it doesn't hurt. It's just it's strange. Like they will hold on. Oh, I guess I've been bit by tarantula. That's technically yeah. venomous, but yeah. She did. She said, I think this spider's gonna bite me. This spider bit me. She didn't get excited. There were two little drops of blood. I was like, look how cute. And yeah. Yeah. So are there any medically significant tarantula bites? That is open for discussion. As of right now, in the literature, there is not. But there are stories and reports. See, I, I have a problem with the government and the people trying to control the government. So I don't know. Saying There are people out there that are saying, yes, these animals are, are medically significant. We need to put some laws in about them. And I don't know that's necessarily That's not true. been proven. Yeah. Although not very many studies have been done. And studies definitely have not been done on every species of tarantula, which their venom varies. I mean, yeah. so uh, in general, old world is more potent than new world. New world is also going to have uh, often urticating hairs. This is going to sound really horrible. Hairs? Urticating hairs. So on their abdomens, they are able to kind of stridulate. And so if they feel threatened, they'll take their legs and they'll kind of brush their bodies. 
and those hairs will kind of remove and float off into the air, kind of like a kind of like a dandelion. It's really cute. But those hairs don't feel very good and they lodge into your skin and if you're trying to eat them, maybe your eyes and your throat and um, it's not so good. They do have a tiny little barb on them and if you're sensitive to them, people would say it's as severe as kind of having brushed up against fiberglass. But um, for the most part, it's slightly irritating. There are some species that I'm more sensitive to than others, but um, some people develop kind of a bad allergy and just can't stand it at all. I mean, it even, and some species don't, um, don't urticate, like, unless they really, like, a dog, you know, ran up and right on top of the enclosure, then they're they're going to kick hairs. And some will urticate hairs if you even walk by the enclosure. So oh. there's, yeah, so, and then that, in that case, you know, those little hairs are kind of floating through the air. Um, so that, for some people, is a real deal breaker. For me, I've gotten to where I've dealt with it for so long that now, like after, if we go and take care of spiders for a couple of hours, I come right in and take a shower. Otherwise it just, it gets very, I'll say irritating. It doesn't hurt, but it's, it's irritating. I'll get red. It feels basically kind of just feels like you have a rash. Like I want to say as bad as like poison ivy or anything, but it doesn't feel good. And, um, so for some people, they prefer an animal with a more potent venom with an animal that doesn't have urticating hairs. And uh, some people like a gentler species that they can handle that um, is probably not going to run away or bite them so quickly, but that if a couple hairs get kicked in the air, just go wash your hands or whatever. Right. That is definitely something crazy to consider. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, sorry. You yeah, seem yeah. like you had to think about your question. So I was going to ask Isaiah Newman. Oh, not sorry. Go, Just... go, go. <laughs> so, okay. Um, Isaiah Newman in the chat said, um, when they do that, does it stress them out? And do they have negative health effects from stress, like snakes? Okay. So um, they will not do that unless they're stressed out. And so, oh, nice. And um, so. Uh... We have a, another guest. You were, we were talking about these guys. Sorry to interrupt. Um, you thought maybe this, we were talking about how long she was, that maybe she was past the breeding age. Just wondering what your thoughts were seeing her. Oh, I have, I would be the wrong person to ask as far as that. But I mean, I've had, I know people have made large females breed like that. Jungle carpets? Yeah. I just okay. don't. I don't think it's like long term the best option, but that girl will definitely. And she has like a very nice ivory type of look to her. She's a good looking animal. Another one that I sent across and said, Hey, I want that animal. What can you do? And it was a friend of ours too. And he said, Why did you send her across to, to deal with me? And, and I said, Really? You had to ask? He offered these, this set of corn snake to me for 50 or 60 bucks more than he gave it to her for. So. I think we should definitely be able to breed her. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, we were talking that maybe she was too big was the thing. 
and, and I don't know because we tried to breed her. We locked her up this year. No eggs at all. Mm. But you were saying that they were having problems with carpet pythons this year? Yeah. Yeah. So a bunch of our friends. Well, we were just at Carpet Fest with a bunch of carpet python breeders. And yeah, it seems like everyone's having a little bit of a struggle. I don't know if things are going later or what's going on, but uh, it's to the point where people would have babies by now. and It doesn't seem like as many people as usual, but. Well, maybe next year then. Yeah. Yeah. But I could see that. Uh, I mean, we have friends, uh, Tony's animals, probably that big. I know uh, Scott Borden, his animal was, That's his fun. female was huge when he had her, but unfortunately she, I believe had a pretty short lifespan with the, the, uh, the thing kind of in question is the long-term viability of that size. pythons that are large. But huh. I'm not an expert on that. I just keep them. You know, I don't have uh, I don't have any females. So you're not trying to breed them? Uh, Owen's trying to breed them for us. We sent ours to uh, Cradle uh, Outback Owen of Road Rat Piles. Um, we sent our mail to him, and nothing happened this year. But he's gonna hold on to him. <laughs> So is so that? This, this is just a molt. Wait, that's not a that's not a thing. That's so this is thing. this is just the exoskeleton from the animal that she molted out of. I didn't realize it looked so real. Oh my God. They literally like their, their entire they they crawl out of their entire because it is a, a, a skeleton. So everything, the hair, the fangs. The fangs stay intact. I don't know if you're going to be able to. In my head, I thought it was going to be like a snake shed where it was like just the skin. But like that's the that's the whole body. So it kind of looks like you have two spiders when right. you open it. Um, so long story short, to answer Isaiah's question, it does not stress them out to kick hairs, but they won't kick hairs unless they are stressed out to a point. And it, but it doesn't hurt them in any way. It's just that they only have so many. And so once all their urticating hairs have been kicked off, then they don't have any more until they molt again. That's the spider that molted. And when I opened up the drawer, she, she did kick, or he did kick hairs off. We got to sex it. And so but you can they... see them in the air? Are they very yeah. You can see them kicking. And then, yeah, you can see. You can see them in the air, but they're really fine. So it's not like a thousand hairs come out at you. You just see a like, couple, like dust kicking up. So what do you do with the molt? What do you what? What do you do with the molt? One of my favorite things is to put them in a cupboard. And when you open that cupboard up, it makes the, the molt come out and fly at the person. And people love that. It's one of the favorite things they ever see. My well, that's somewhere what in my head is like you should sell them to like Halloween shops that make like you know scary things. <laughs> that would be a good idea. They're so fragile though; they just kind of break apart like yeah. pretty quickly. If you want to preserve them, you have to put them in some kind of a liquid. Otherwise, they they don't last very long. So what we do do with them is we'll examine the molt often to determine the gender of the animal. Um, and then I use them sometimes for educational stuff, um, you know, because kids can touch the molt and really see inside of the body and see the body cavities. <laughs> so this is not that spider that molted. 
after they molt, they're pretty soft for seven to ten days. But this is one of the most beautiful animals on the planet. This is from Indiana Jones. You remember that scene where he's uh, going in the cave in the beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark? All those spiders that he kicks off of him are, is this species. And in those days, you go to pet store and pick them up. Now you have to buy them captive born because they don't export out of Mexico anymore. Is that a big thing as far as, obviously, snakes have gone very, very far as far as the captive born and bred animals. I mean, are you having to depend wild cost stuff a lot in the invert world? Well, postal etheria, they're trying to make that entire genus uh, endangered. So we can't even move them across state lines anymore, which is going to hurt us just like snakes. If you can't move them across state lines, it's harder to, to find pairs to breed. It's going to be hard to sell 1,500 of something in New Mexico. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. Luckily, that's, that's not one of the species. Okay. But, oh, I'm going to touch my first snake. I mean, snake is first, first tarantula in October. Oh, oh you cool. are. And so this is slowly preparing me. Clearly, I didn't have a good reaction. Well, I haven't touched one. I either, will so. by October. <laughs> I'll be sure to film it. Oh my God. Oh. And just there was a huge thing going around the internet about five years ago. Don't kiss a spider for any reason. Oh, absolutely not. Uh -uh. <laughs> no, no. I <laughs> this this far away to me. Well, people do that with snakes too. They kiss them, and one time this guy messaged us, and he was like, "I accidentally farted on my snake. Like, what should I do?" And I was like, "Excuse Smell me." Smell it. I think. It like, why was your snake anywhere near that part of your body? <laughs> Yeah, that's probably not a question you really want to ask somebody on <laughs> <in> the internet. <laughs> wow. No, they the spiders are. Um, there's hopefully when you where I, is this going to be Tinley? You're going to hold it up. Yes. Okay. Well, hopefully somebody there will be knowledgeable and they'll be able to pull out a spider that isn't. Uh, they you don't have to, have to tell me who, what table to go to, and who's to hold. We don't hardly know any of the breeders anymore. And, really? you know, we've already been to Tinley, so I don't know who goes there. Although we want to go this fall bad. Do yeah. it, do it, do it, do it. We're going to try. We might be bunking with you guys, because I think all the rooms in Chicago are already sold. <laughs> you can always find a floor or someone who has a suite with a couch or whatever. <laughs> but if just make just talk to the people and ask them and tell them that you would like to do that. Some people will flat out tell you no. Some people that want to, I guess that at Tinley, they even have that alligator that sits in the front that people go and pet. Hopefully, you'll find somebody that'll maybe start you with the stick bug. And the feeling is kind of the same as a tarantula uh, as far as the hooks and all that. And then kind of work your way up to the spider. Okay, I'm sorry. Our friend Ryan has room in his room at Tinley. And we can vouch that he's a good, normal person. Um, so you guys right. have to stay. It's on. It's on. Ryan, no, get no ready. Excuses. Yeah. <laughs> well, you got to remember, we're a little ways away from Chicago. I was about to say, they're very far away. There's some excuses. To That's me. not a weekend there's, trip. Yeah, there's some excuses. <laughs> uh, well, we definitely want to explore it. So let's let's talk. Um but so what what you're going to Tinley, what are you hoping to see when you're there? 
Because we've never been to the show. So he's been twice. I've never been. And basically, the thing to see there is there's always like one or two animals that you're like, like the first year I went, I saw a Borneo earless monitor for the first time. So that was like, holy shit, I didn't know that that was possible. Um, I don't know how that happened, but that's for another day, I suppose. But And then this time it was uh, Exanthic Timor Python or Anery Timor Python, whatever which one, which is something no one knew existed until Tinley. So there's usually like a couple first, animals that first. someone just like puts out there and you're like, wow, I didn't know that that existed. So I don't know what that's going to be. But I know that I want to just have drinks and hang out <laughs> with all the snake people. That's, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Our sponsor is going to be there, and they said that they could get us uh, VIPs there. Ooh, uh, who's your sponsor? Gotcha. That's what I was going to ask you. The earless monitor, was it on at their table? Yes. Like it, was at, it was at a random table. It must have been like 2014 or so um but yeah it was just at someone's table i was pretty green as far as knowing who's who but i don't remember who brought it in or else i would know a lot more about the source of it i'm sure but uh i'm sure it wasn't like uh you know i could i could only imagine who it was but um yeah it's just something that i didn't expect to ever see well do you watch uh brian cusco's channel yeah. Did you see when he was at Tinley? He met a lady there that had a bunch of corn snakes. Do you happen to know what her name was? I'd like to contact her. Um, I'm not sure you're talking about. Maybe it's Kayla. No, Kayla only has corn snakes. Um, we might have to go back and watch. The there was a few, a few corn snake people. Was it this year, Tinley? Yeah, the spring show, I think. Uh, yeah. Spring, then, yeah, that's going to be a whole different crowd. Oh. We'll go uh, back to the video and see if we can if we recognize the person. Well, we're looking to get more into corn snakes, but corn snakes in New Mexico, there aren't a ton of them around. We pick them up when we can find them, but there's not many people doing corn snakes. Are you guys vending shows in New Mexico? Uh, we do in Texas. There are no shows in New Mexico. What? There was a sh there was a show years ago, and there was a guy that ran it that ran a pet store in Albuquerque, and that's where the show was. He sold it off to a guy that owned a strip joint, and the last I heard was that he was letting people hold cobras in that hallway. There were and drugs and hookers, and it didn't go well. So, so. the uh, Humane Society shut him down, and we actually looked into starting the show, but the cost of just because of all that that's gone on everybody's going to basically tell you no, so you have to have an end somewhere. And But no, there are the show. last show was like 2008, 2009. Mm. It's been a long time. But I mean, like Albuquerque, Santa Fe, like these are Too big small. enough places to have a reptile show. That's crazy. Yep. And they're not there. I feel like yep. every state should have at least one show. Like, that's crazy that, you know, at this point, snakes are so widely known. And not just, you know, reptiles in general are so widely known. And so many people have a leopard on Rear Dragon and this and that. I feel like there should be a show in every state at this point. We agree. And there's even one in Montana, which when I lived there, there wasn't one. But uh, our, our home place is San Antonio. We go to the Texas Reptile Expo. We know most of the people there, so it's just like going home. Yeah, it's so fun. And but how far 
time is that for y'all? On a good day when she doesn't have to pee eight hours. I always have to pee so 12 about, hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> so do you guys usually travel with, uh, are you usually bringing tarantulas there or do you bring reptiles also? Both. Yeah, we do typically have a selection of both. Like right now we have a bunch of Sulawesi pythons for sale, uh, retics. Yep. Uh, we got a in on those, and I don't know if you know locales, but the Sulawesi was not brought in by the tons, and there aren't very many people breeding. I think is that the one that Ryan's looking for? And Ryan's literally in the chat, so we'll see him in all caps say something if it is. Oh yeah, he just said "Hey." With a, I guess that means he I is think, looking for. I think for that's it. what he's looking for. So. I know a guy. So you guys, when you guys meet him at Tinley and, and share a room with him. <laughs> If you're in your room, <laughs> you can also train retics. <laughs> yeah. Do you guys do any of the big stuff? Absolutely not. Olive except pythons. for the olives. Ah. So do you have any interest in in retics or berms? Not at all. Yeah. Uh, it just seems like the least efficient thing. But between rabbits and cages. And space no, in right. a Philadelphia row house. Like, we would have to change our whole life plans i feel like we have to move. our living room has three eight foot cages with retics in them we had to change our life for them too but i love them so <laughs> our, our, our living room has like double the square footage of, of our living room <laughs> i can see that pennsylvania packs the houses in i mean and obviously like next in the next few years we're gonna get a bigger house but still not no i'm happy with our like four foot corn snakes <laughs> and our like we want to make the olive like a display animal and that'll be our one that we bring downstairs yeah if i could put a, an eight foot cage in the living room for the olive like that would be, which that'd i told be you i which, will yeah. eventually allow we just need to <laughs> i just need to build an eight foot cage and we need to move <laughs> maybe <laughs> what you need to do if you're going to build one eight foot cage, you might as well build two and pair that up. <laughs> well, yeah, you got to bring it to healing if you're going to start the floor. So <laughs> just build up. Yep. We've so been there. Is there anything that you want to tell us uh, this season coming up or anything you're excited about? Um, I would just say that um, we've got some really, really exciting interviews and shows coming. Um, I mean, I'm always excited about our breeding projects. Hopefully, we're going to have some sand boas and some, you know, tables. yeah, dropping pretty soon. Um, our incubator crashed, so we lost yeah, all of our Yeah, we're, we're starting all over. We've got some other lizards and stuff going, and um, of course, my horse had a baby, so yay. But um, I'm going to be, yeah, I just interviewed Dave Kaufman, Ray Morgan. I'm doing Tom Crutchfield. You and, guys. Yeah, of course. Wait, uh, Tom Crutchfield? Mm-hmm. Ah. <laughs> little name drop in there. So we've got some uh, Ken Foos. I don't know who you know who that is. Uh, yes, some, I want Ken Foos. Yeah, uh, we've got some really exciting interviews coming up. We just really feel passionate about um, documenting the origins of the reptile industry in the U.S. And more and more people are are getting excited with us and being willing. 
I feel like we've kind of proven that we're we're here to stay and we're serious and that we're respected in the hobby. And so, you know, because it was a long time when people didn't take me seriously. And um, I was telling him at the last show I went to, which he didn't get to go to, there was a group of older guys sitting uh, along the wall, kind of three booths sort of crammed together. Every time I would walk by, they were kind of grumbling about, you know, my success. And I mean, it was it was good natured, but it was just kind of funny. They were talking about, yeah, she's on the TV now. And, you know, (laughs) just, you know, I mean, it was kind of common knowledge. And so that's exciting. Um, She's also working on getting the interview with the guy that produced the Deadpool snake. Oh, yeah, that's already, yeah. He, he had to move. Uh, Ralph, uh, what's his name? Ralph or, or uh, Raphael? Yeah. Yes. Um, I met him at, at Hamburg. He's that guy, you remember? He's very tall, dude. Is he? New Yorker. Who, yes. I met him in it. You, you mentioned him, but never mind. Are you sure I met him? You know I spent 90% of Hamburg sitting at my table did i meet this yeah yeah you saw him from across the room because he's like twice because he was so tall (laughs) well jessica belk is the same way he's pretty tall yeah that guy you can see him in a crowd (laughs) anyway um i feel like you know just always exciting things happening we uh now that we've got some new incubators going we're gonna have some fun reproduction and watch the channel and to all the people out there that are getting started, don't rely on just the internet. Buy a book. Most books that are published, somebody other than the person that wrote it is looking at it to see how accurate it might be. Uh, we, Like I said, we've got a bunch of books. We still buy books. And, uh, well, I like pictures, too. So I do like the internet, but I like books. We're nerds. And if anyone wants to get in contact with you guys, where can they reach out? Um, well, I can send you links to our Facebook, Instagram, and our YouTube channel. Or Deadly Transfer Girl at Yahoo.com. Mm-hmm, yeah, Deadly Transfer Girl on YouTube. What are you on Instagram? Instagram's Deadly Transfer Girl. And then Marita De La Pena on Facebook. Sweet. And then for us, PortCityPythons.com. PortCityPythons Port on Instagram. PortCityPythons Port on, on Facebook. YouTube. Oh, I thought you were going <laughs> to Facebook and YouTube. Damn it. That would have been cool to set it <laughs> together. It. Yeah, we lost. Um, poor city. Well, now, I don't know what to do now. Baby's coming soon. Shows Other coming than that, soon. if no one, obviously, if you're not watching YouTube, you can't appreciate JD's amazing Britney Spears shirt. Oh, yeah. JD, I want to tell you, like, half the chat has been just commenting and talking about Britney Spears. And <laughs> she's a hero of mine, too. Everyone appreciates it, mainly because it's like a throwback. It's not like a new Britney. We like the the old school Britney. Exactly, exactly. And I would love to commend you guys. Uh, we we listen to podcasts. We've gone all through Sean Bradley stuff, and we've gone all through Chris uh, Eaton stuff. And you guys have so much stuff we haven't gotten through all of it yet. But I love listening to you when we're taking care of our animals, and it's very enjoyable. I thank you guys for doing it. Yeah, you're awesome. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. And I appreciate you having us on. And if anyone wants to go check out my interview with your channel, Deadly Tarantula Girl. And I think, I don't know, 
it's funny y'all are talking like to us but like we definitely hearing your story it's it's inspiring for us just you know you guys have been doing this for six or seven years and just like getting your name out there and getting that recognition that i know so many people who are doing this like want and deserve um it's but nice no one hear, can follow through that but it, right it's nice to hear years. you stuck it out and like that there is like hope <laughs> i guess out there for people like us who you know i keep i need to remind myself like we really are just starting out like we've only been doing it for about two years like and so when i get like frustrated or whatever i need to remind myself like we got to put in the time to get the rewards i think it took us four or five years to get to ten thousand subs Okay, good, because that was my first year goal, and it's almost three years, and we're at 9,000, so. It's really good. And then now we're at, like, 45,000. We went from 10 to 20 in, like, nine months, and then it's just, yeah, it grew after that, so. And consistency is it. I mean, you hear the words all the time, but until you're filming, editing, uploading and trying to find out youtube's algorithm yeah. you don't know what's oh. that really i tr- i have nightmares about youtube and instagram's algorithm <laughs> i i was literally getting more views on my videos when when we had half the followers and half the subscribers we got more stuff it makes no sense that's crazy i told joe i was like how much would i pay for someone to just tell like I I mean multiple hundreds of dollars I would pay. I mean obviously for someone to just like tell me like but then at the same time they tell me it and two weeks later what am I doing wrong? Yeah. Right, right. It's just so frustrating trying to understand it. Well, if you guys ever want to discuss that, uh hit us up. We'll we'll talk we'll tell you what we've learned, which isn't everything. And it's you know, Dave Kaufman talked about how he's studying the algorithms. I never did that, and we still aren't doing it. Well, he's jumped I mean, ahead of us. Yeah. So, so his his channel just outgrew us like within the last three months. Yeah. Yeah. But, but he's awesome. He's doing a good job. I don't even know how you study. I don't, it's just so crazy. But we're always trying to talk to people, and like we try to share art. I feel bad because I'm like someone asked us the other day, and I was like, I told them what I know, but I'm like, oh, they got 130 likes on Instagram. And then so it's like, yeah, between all the things, it seems like they are trying to take away your organic reach because they're realizing that all we're doing is like advertising on their channels for free. So they're like, yeah, Instagram wants our money for us to get likes, which is not going to (laughs) happen. Well, we know somebody, well, we don't know it for a fact, but we believe somebody paid some kind of a bot company to get a bunch of views and they were neck and neck with us for for subscribers for about six months and then all of a sudden they lost thousands of subscribers in in a matter of 24 hours and so you don't want to do that <laughs> you so you wanna, think they got analyzed for that yeah yeah, yeah youtube will, will audit you like when we first started i hate to say this but i'd watch our videos like 10 or 15 times and we were only getting 200 views a month. At the end of the month, they cut them 15 views away. They take them away from us. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we still, we still watch the channel. Well, but... yeah, there are times when I need to refer back to a video, like, which video did I say that in? And so I'll be scrolling through. And we will fall back. Uh, 
be a little bit sometimes. Yeah. I mean, we don't like autoplay our own channel, but, um, you know, we do view it on occasion, you know, like, um, I'll probably go back and I'll, I'll probably, sh I don't know, share the link to something we talked about tonight. And, uh, so, you know, I have to see what video that is and it will start to play, which really they worry more. They, they, and they used to pay on views when we first got our partnership. So if you got that click and somebody opened that video, you got paid. Now it's minutes watched. Yeah. They changed that about five years ago. Well, I, I actually, you know, I got paid just as much as I do now when I first started, had a thousand subscribers. Yeah. I feel like we haven't made like a bump up. And by the way, if anyone wants to know what we make a month, I don't care saying. We make like less than a hundred dollars a month. So it's really not a big deal. So if anyone wants to know how much a YouTuber with 9,000 subscribers makes, that, which is nothing. Well, Maybe a, there's a 16-year-old kid who's like, I wish I had a $100. So here's an interesting story. It took us like two years to get our first paycheck. We soaked up with Google AdSense, and they said, okay, congratulations, you're now a partner. Just as soon as you reach 100 bucks, we'll pay you. So two years, finally we got 100 bucks, And I told her, we, I, uh, still mad about this. <laughs> I told her, now I want you to take that hundred dollars and I want you to buy something for the channel that you can wear and we can show and you can say this is where my money went. She went out and bought herself a pair of shoes. Never <laughs> <laughs> show her feet on this channel. Hey, sometimes you do, not very often. So, I mean, I, that's neither here nor there, but <laughs> man, <laughs> great story. Yeah. <laughs> but you guys totally pretty good if you're only doing this a couple years and you're already getting a hundred about a hundred bucks a month that's good that's so much yeah i don't know it's just i don't know out of expectations patience and... oh he thought we were going to be rich within the first year or something but i thought we would achieve the level that we have from the start and we did and she still has to say you're right. I was wrong. And she hates saying it. And he loves it. But I have a question <laughs> for you. Since you're podcasting too, one, do you have any problems with copyright issues doing this as a podcast and as a YouTube video? No. Well, I don't put like the intro music and stuff in the, the live version. So that would be my only problem with that. But uh, yeah, so I don't put that on YouTube. I just put it on the, Audio. On the podcast. And then podcasts aren't really monitored like that. So. Okay. And have you guys figured out how to get paid for a podcast? No. It's weird. Uh, the, the sponsorship, it, uh, it's never worked out with someone that conflict with what we already do. So there's, um, I don't know. We've, we're thinking, or we have thought about it in the past. I've pursued some people, but I haven't got anyone to sponsor it. And then once we kind of got our feet wet, we decided that we're getting into something to where if we get sponsored by the people who are currently sponsoring a lot of YouTubers and stuff, those are going to be our competitors in a year. So therefore it's probably smarter for us in the long term to just assist, not associate so that we can just use this platform to market our products rather than uh, basically get paid. If that makes any sense. So we're just holding off on that until we can get our stuff out there. So it's not any weird conflicting thing with a sponsor or anything like that. 
Well, that's not weird because we constantly fight that. Um, just conflict of interest in different companies. We have companies that don't like each other, so we have to walk with. We have to put on kid gloves. And yeah. Do it. And it's that's seriously to think about. And Chris Eaton, he started doing some rack company and then decided to pull him because he already had a rack sponsor and he didn't want to, you know, kind of fighting amongst each other. So I, I just wondering if you had figured it out yet because. I'm trying to talk her into doing a podcast with all these interviews. And you already no. got audio, man. You can easily upload it and put it out on RSS. Well, that's what I wanted to make sure was that there wasn't a uh, problem. Yeah, or something. from your YouTube channel to your podcast. Nope. Right now, we just we put the audio out on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and have no issues. Is it a big process for you to, to put it on all three of those platforms? Um, no, because through SoundCloud, we have it set up that it distributes to all of those platforms. But as far as, you know, we'll rip the audio from the live feed and then I will put it into Audition and I'll edit it appropriately and then and then put it up on SoundCloud usually like 24 hours after. So, you know, after we record it. But it's not too hard. Right. But it's yeah. super it's super simple to be honest. And if you if you want to know how to do it, I'll tell you everything. Awesome. Well do you uh how long does it take you to edit one of these for podcasts? I have like presets and stuff, and if you want to know that stuff, I can give you that as well. So but it's like I automatically, you know, when it hits this level, it clips it. When it hits this, it clips, you know, like I have things set up to where it makes the process really easy and typically it will take me like a half hour to edit a podcast and I'm really, I try to keep it pretty raw on, on our end. So. Okay. Cool. You guys so we'd love to <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for having us. This is the first time we've ever actually come out together. Other <laughs> yeah. than my interview with the snake, but so, a lot well, of fun. Awesome. Is there, so. is there any reason why, because you've seen, Totally fine on camera. Is there any reason why you don't get out in front of the camera more often? Look at this. <laughs> Look at you. You'd be surprised how many guys will like will like you as far as like they'll be like, oh, that's just a normal guy. Lee, they want to see guys like them. <laughs> I don't know about that. I worked very hard on building the character of Deadly Tramps. Look, we worked very hard yes. so we we sat at night in bed and discussed kind of loudly about how this should go and there were a lot of sleepless nights so i think we'll just leave it the way it is <laughs> but it is kind of funny how you come up with so many like ideas for the channel and then you guys work together to get it done like well we were having super super involved obviously yeah uh, yeah we we do this together but we were talking we were We've got several books that we have written in my head. Mm -hmm. it, she said she's the language arts teacher, so she's going to type it all out. So I told her, now it's your turn to write a story, and then I'll write it out. So when I'm doing the story, she's asking me all the technical questions. Well, if he goes here, how could that possibly be because he's made out of air or whatever? And I'll have to come up with it right off the bat. So yesterday, I started doing that to her. Boy, she got mad. She doesn't, mad. she doesn't like to... Uh, Come up with things spontaneously. She likes to work her way through it. My mind is a planning it. mind, and my mind is all imagination. Yeah, uh, the sky's your limit. 
so. craziness. It works. It works it very does. well for us. We're a good team. Right. And on. you guys, I love listening to you guys. I really do. Um, it's very entertaining. <laughs> we're very, in some ways, we're a lot alike, and in many other ways, we're very different. Oh, in real life, like both of us hate being told what to do. So trying to work together with like snake stuff can be kind of difficult. Let's not get into that. Um, but that goes for go both of us. Neither of us wants each other. We're both very stubborn and very independent people. Um, but for well, the luckily, podcast, how it works. Uh, luckily for me, she's smart than I am, so she lets me think I'm in control. <laughs> and it works out pretty good. So I've hey, got man, it. it works. <laughs> I've got to ask you guys, I heard about how you guys met, but where did you guys meet at? In Dallas. We both, um, I moved to Dallas in... At Velvet Taco. August. Dallas, Texas. No, we met at my apartment first when you picked me up, but our first date was at Velvet Taco. Um, But yeah, in Dallas. I moved there in August, and you had moved in September? Yeah, about the same time. A little bit later than me. Mm Mm-hmm. So how long before you knew the magic was there? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's weird. We were just talking about this last night. Like we met and we pretty much lived together like two weeks after we met. Yeah, like we were supposed to go out again. Like that we went out on a Tuesday. We were supposed to go out again on Friday, but we decided to meet on Wednesday again. And then so. pretty much, yeah. And then pretty much lived together. After that. <laughs> yeah, I said two weeks, it was really like, no, because in the beginning we tried to do like back and forth. I feel like for a solid week and a half, maybe two weeks, we tried to do back and forth and that didn't work. Animals, dog. And then we're like, oh, let's just consolidate here. And I just basically moved in with him. But she actually like she wasn't living with me. You know, she didn't have like all of her clothes there. No, I now. had... I would bring clothes for the next day and stop by my house on the way home from work. And I didn't want to completely overtake your life. And it's not like you <coughs> invited me or anything. Of course. <coughs> you know? Yeah, she just kind of kept on showing up, so. <laughs> it happens sometimes. And now it's two and a half years later, which isn't that much in the grand scheme of things, but. I mean, we moved halfway across the world, not the world, the Jesus, world. the country. Um, yeah, to a foreign place neither of us knew. So we should have we should have asked you guys how you guys met. I don't think we got like a... All we heard was... And now we're like three hours in, stuff, so... But... Well, that's pretty quick. We met at a pet store. I saw her and it was love at first sight. <laughs> it took her a while to get used to me. <laughs> and you know what's funny? We had Emily and Ed of Snake Discovery on, and they met in a pet store also. And she was working at the pet store, and he was, you know, the guy just coming in, and he was kind of shocking. Well. And, and um, yeah. We fought about gerbils. She wanted gerbils, and I told her, you don't need gerbils. And- <laughs> They bite and they jump and they're nasty little creatures and you don't want them. And she they're cute. Like else. a tiny kid. No, I went back to you and I bought them from you. Oh, I don't remember that. I know. But anyway, that's it. <laughs> Your two podcasts in a row with pet store love story. And that is such a unique love, love story, story to our friends, I think. <laughs> 
Well, here's something ironic that we learned from Ryan McVay. Most people that are into reptiles love dinosaurs, and their first animal that they caught was a garter snake. I hate dinosaurs. I don't hate dinosaurs. I just don't care about them because they're not alive. And my first animal was a frog, not a garter snake. I'm the same way, though. If you can't touch it and you can't see it in the flesh, I care less. Yep. <laughs> my first snake was not a garter snake. My first snake was a corn snake. But I, I used to catch garter snakes. But. I, I love garter snakes, but uh, it was years before I actually caught my first one. I, when I was four years old, my grandma helped me catch this frog, and that was it. After that, I tried, even at four years old, to get as much information as I can, which wasn't, ah, that's slimy, don't touch that. That was my information. <laughs> well, at least you're still interested, uh, however many years later. And it's- How long have y'all been together? Um, 12 years? Something like that. And I was going to say two and a half years. One of these days, you're going to look back and go, remember, we only thought that we'd only been together for two and a half years. You're going to go, man, <laughs> I can't believe it feels like an eternity, like already, it feels like a long time because we've done so much. Right. So when it's 12 years, you're like, holy crap. Like we've done all the podcasts together, like the YouTube stuff. Like we all started that kind of together. Like yeah. Imagine together. like dating someone three months and like, huh, I do a podcast. You want to be on it? And... Yeah. No, she was like, what if I'm on your podcast forever? No, I will. I don't believe you. This will not. I think you asked me. I don't think I said I should be on it. I said, maybe we should do one episode. I don't think so. I think you were like, oh, you should come on so I can talk to someone and not just talk to myself. I think we're going to have to look back at the tape. So. Oh, okay. Okay. When you build a, a time machine. Okay. We'll, we'll go. see what happens. It's nice having this stuff because then when you have these arguments, you can clarify it. <laughs> well, and it's kind of like YouTube is going to be our time machine eventually. I'm sure you can go back five years and be like, whoa, remember that? Even a year, it's amazing how much we've changed. Yeah, I'm getting old. I'm already old. So. <laughs> Lies. Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. Y'all are still doing all the young things. Oh, yeah. We do lots of young thing stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That could go different. Take that in. That's about a wrap, then. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we are 42 minutes past. I like to talk. That is, yeah. We visit sometimes. Yeah, we do. Hopefully, we'll get to meet Jenly and hang out. Yeah. really awesome. Come to Tinley. Um, thank you everyone who's watched this and who We're might not gonna be do listening. The again. No, I'm just saying a little thank you. Thank you everyone who's watched this on YouTube and stuck with this song, and everyone who will be listening on the downloads. Again, I'm gonna plug our video though. If you're interested in Timbers at all, Joe made a great video, and you should watch it. I spent so much damn time. No one's watched my video. Wow, I've never heard you use that voice before. Let's no, not do that That's again. Thank you. Um, okay, bye, everyone. We'll still be on. Wait, JD, you want to just say something? Oh, sorry. Well, it's just a, when we're talking some other time off of the camera, I want to know how you did that spot where you paused it and you brought the, the guy up. That was really cool. You did some really nice editing on that. So I have questions for you. That's all. Okay, let's get off the live and then we can talk. <laughs> yeah. Okay, bye, everyone. Thank you, guys. Thank you, everyone who listened.